Mainly also it's used kind of outside and how can you kind of simplify it so, you know the outside lights are turned on at a specific time and turned off at a specific time so you don't have to care about it. So step one was a couple of lights. Step one was a couple of lights. And and, and that was the, the okay so and, and from here what happened? No and then I got in I mean t- start talking to a colleague and he mentioned his product called the Home Assistant which is kind of an open source software which has the I mean idea to kind of bring all of this together. So regardless of kind of which product you buy, you know, everything can be centralized into one platform and you can build automations across all of them. So then it became, you know, as soon as you pop it into your network, it's like, oh, it discovers your router. Now I can see uh, which devices is online on my Wi-Fi. And then I can use that as an input to automate, you know, when I come home and my phone goes onto the Wi-Fi, I can automate that the lights go on or that, uh, and it detected my very short alarm and then it can, you know, uh, as I come home and it takes on my Wi-Fi, it can turn off the alarm, it can turn on the lights, you know, and then we, you know, move on from there to kind of automate the garage door. And then you can, you know, get notifications saying that, oh, your garage door has been open for 30 minutes. Do you have a vision for the future, like three years from now or five years from now, when you, when you arrive at home, how that experience is going to be like? No, I think it's a bit different, difficult as well. You know, you, you need to always ensure that everyone in the family kind of accepts <laughs> these automations as well, because, you know. The change management part. So, so uh, which, which automation was the hardest change management? Uh, I think it's somehow some of the lightning, because it's, you know, sometimes some of them you can't really turn on and off without the app if it's not done automatically. So I think that my wife struggles a bit with, and she thinks it's, you know, what the hell are you doing? So basically, before I could s- press on this switch, yeah. now you asked me to go into a fucking app. <laughs> basically, but the idea is to rather than to use kind of the smart lights, started actually to put the kind of, uh, you put the things behind your switches mm. instead. So then you can use the light switch as normal, but you can also automate it. Ah, so now you're taking the next step of having a more <laughs> smooth and integrated automation yeah. in the normal Workflow. Yeah, because also, you know, if you have guests over, if you have someone yeah. else over and, you know, they might have a hard time managing if you didn't need to go into an app or, oh, yeah. you know, if something doesn't work properly. We, we have New Year's dinner. Before you come to our home, please download this app exactly. <laughs> to go to the toilet. Or if my parents-in-law <laughs> are, are over and, you know, the light in their bedroom turns off, turn on at six o'clock in the morning on a Saturday because, you know, it's one of the window lights and they typically turn on kind of in the... Yeah. What, what's the weirdest reaction you've gotten from a guest? I haven't gotten that much weird huh? reactions, actually. I think it's just been annoying. Why, why did its light turn on? It's like, well, it does that. It does that. It's supposed to do that. Yeah. But what did you say? You, ha- you have even red light and green light f- for sleep for the children. That, is that true? That's yeah. cool. That's no, I have it cool. kind of in my, in my kid's room. It's kind of a night light, which, I have, which you know, turns red as we go to bed. And I, but that I do manually because it's not always the same time. So then it turns down and it dims down and then it's kind of red during the night. And then I can't remember what it is. It's like 6.20 or something. It turns green. And then, you know, my kids know that, you know, okay, now it's morning and it's okay to get up. Yeah, so don't get up when the light is still at night. Light. No, That's it, a good programming, by the way. Did you consider having a yellow light? Like, be, now be ready? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, it's better from green to red because otherwise, you know, yeah. they need clear rules to only two and five. You know, we can't... Uh, <laughs> a binary. Yeah, yeah. We can't expect too much. But, you know, it works sometimes, not always. But, you know, sometimes also you're a bit annoyed because... 
we need to go down and watch TV because the light, the, the light is green. <laughs> oh. You don't have to. No. But um, let's go a little bit techy now. So we, yeah, I, I can imagine someone says, oh, you should buy everything from one uh, supplier here, yeah. like a Google Home and all that. But how, what route did you take on how to build this? No, I, I really like the concept of kind of, I want everything to be able to be managed locally. So mm-hmm. I, I rather not rely on the cloud mm-hmm. uh, to be able to manage this because, you know, we've seen so many times that kind of home automation providers, you know, either I kind of close down their APIs mm. to limit that you only can use their app mm. or they close down entirely and you basically need to brick your things and throw them away. Mm. Um, so I want everything to be able to be controlled locally. So you want to have your local <coughs> Wi-Fi as a no- local network. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all the, you know, if you use kind of Zigbee or Z-Wave or the other kind of home automation protocols and thread coming up now. But Okay. So let's talk about what, what are the, tri- is there's a couple protocols which are very much in tune to home automation. So yeah. what, what are they? I mean, uh, the, the main ones right now is Zigbee and Z-Wave. So basically they're basically mesh protocols, which, you know, the devices you have can talk to each other and then you kind of build out your network based on that. Uh, and then there's a new one coming out, which is Thread, which I think is going to be interesting because it's backed by kind of Google, Apple, Amazon. And what is Thread? As a dif- what's differentiating with Thread? I mean, it's just a new protocol. Mm. It's basically if you adhere to these standards, these yeah. these things it's can communicate work. to each other. Yeah. And are the devices either one protocol or the other, or many devices I mean, s- both protocols? Zigbee uh, and Thread uh, will be quite. I mean, most of them can, you know, switch. I mean, the old Zigbee products can most likely be upgraded to be able to communicate over um, Thread. But Z-Wave uh, is something completely different. That's a kind of proprietary um, proprietary thing. So now you, you know, need to think about standardizing on one of these protocols. Yes. Thread, you think? Yeah, probably. I mean, there's not that many products out it, yet. Yeah, so, so that right now is critical mass of products yeah. that sort of dictates. But there's a lot of Wi-Fi stuff as well. So a lot of people go Wi-Fi. And why wouldn't you go Wi-Fi only? I, what was the problem with that? I mean, I think it depends on I mean, how many devices you have. I mean, how and how good is your Wi-Fi network? <laughs> True. Basically, uh, is it uh, is it capable of handling kind of hundreds <laughs> of devices? <laughs> or and then I think it's kind of a security aspect as well. You know, I think the Wi-Fi products True. is easier. They have better access to the internet. And I think this kind of home automation protocols can kind of talk locally. Without being open in the same way. Yeah. And if, if someone were to be inspired and wants to start down this rabbit hole, where do you go as a first point of learning online? I mean, I think it depends on how deep you want to go. I mean, taking the route I've taken with kind of home assistant, then you need to basically, you need to have a server of some type. I mean, you can run fine on a Raspberry Pi, but you need to kind of know it. And then you, it's like a Docker install and you need the, you know, <laughs> so it's a bit more complex, but I think otherwise, you know, any of the, uh, I know, I think, you know, lights is typically a good way to start. I mean, it's easy. Oh, we have Philips Hue. We have many yeah. different, quite, and IKEA has products which are quite sort of entry point. And also, you know, if you buy Philips Hue, you know, mm. and you get the Philips Hue hub, you can buy the Trollfree lights and use it with the, with the hub because you both use Zigbee. So you can actually use the IKEA lights with the Hue hub if you have it. So maybe one of the sort of tips from the coach here, 
if there's one thing you need to learn or f- understand is like, have a look what protocol they're running on, yeah. because then you can have them sort of, will this work in my, if I do that and I add this, it kind of will work if it's Zigbee at least. So that's yeah. a simple. Yeah, but I would also, yeah, and also look, you know, how worried are you about kind of uh, using the cloud for this? Mm. And I think that's up to up to each individual person. I mean, some of them can be run locally as well mm-hmm. and use their cloud interface. But I think it's, you know, because we have seen, uh, you know, there's this uh, podcast on Home Assistant where she can, you know, they always play the sound when, you know, a cloud provider kind of withdraws the access or kind of removes their cloud solution or start paying for it or that you need to start paying a kind of a subscription fee for it. No. And that's not really what you promised when you bought the product. And then you bu- have a product at home, which you either need to pay a subscription for it to continue using, or you need to throw it away. Wow. Yeah. Home automation. Well, I think it's time to sort of get into the meat of this uh, podcast. And But today, uh, before I introduce you, Daniel, yeah. I just want to say hello to Kai uh, as our guest host. This is something we are trying today. So... Welcome, Kai. Thank you very much. Who I'm are you, Kai? You get 30 seconds, not more. Yeah. And, and okay, I'm going to just say I'm Kai Anderson. Excited to work in AI. I've done so for the last five years. Uh, work with AI Sweden and uh, um, a few other companies. But I guess I'm here in my capacity as trying to change and accelerate Sweden and learn from Daniel in terms of what... No, you're not here in that capacity. You are here because you came in for a beer and we asked you to yeah. sit down. Okay, that's and, true. and then basically... You've been on uh, one of our guests before, so we love you and we think you're awesome. Yeah. Okay. Honestly, I'll just bring my brain and bring your brain, my autism and just be honest and (laughs) ask uncomfortable questions. Sounds good. And and then uh, Goran, we have you sitting down with us today. You're typically sometimes a lot of times the producer behind the... The, the production, so to speak, but now today we have Kirill now. We have Kirill us, today. Good. So Anders is gone. That means we can do changes. A yeah. Lot yeah. <laughs> so today I'm playing the, the 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 devil's advocate. I will be the guy who basically okay. Now it's enough time with this topic. We move to the second one, right? See, thank you so much about that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't so, even know. <laughs> so m- m- maybe um, this is the producer who sort of, dudes, I'm trying to cut this up into different segments, but it never works. Put me on the show. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's going to be very great. So. Cool. So uh, let's let's try. So a little bit. Uh, yeah, we'll 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 doing it. Super cool that you yeah. could just on the whim join Kai. Thank you. Uh, it's very liberating to get the question f- five minutes ahead. Yeah, that's cool. Man. A few weeks. So ahead. professionally prepared. It's after work. What do you mean? You don't get there. Yeah. <laughs> you can get invited to after work. You just pop uh, after. Work after okay. um, yeah. so, and now and now back to the main guest, of course, yeah. Daniel Engberg. So very much uh, welcome, Daniel. Thank you. And I guess there's a couple of years ago we met the first time. I had just started Daredex. I think we were on the same conference in Berlin. Yeah, and uh, that was a good sh- uh, good show, good conference, and then that was. Uh, Kind of good dinner. We had some good conversations so. about yeah. watches and drank some beers yeah. and that was cool. So, you know, fantastic to have you here now and, and uh, super excited also because of, you know, what you're doing in SES Airlines. Mm. And so we'll, we'll talk about that shortly, but let's start from the beginning. So a, a very simple, but maybe a hard question. Who is Daniel Engberg? Who is? Yeah, I'm actually uh, grown up in the suburbs, south of Stockholm. 
long time ago. Uh, then, uh, you know, I started out kind of a journey which uh, was kind of what should I do? You know, always trying to choose the open choices. Ended up in uh, Lean Shopping, studying industrial engineering and management. And then, uh, you know, had a year abroad, did the fun stuff. Uh, and then, uh, you know, moving on to um, Accenture after studies. Same, you know, starting out on kind of technology strategy. So how do we work with, I uh, worked a lot with different kind of large Swedish enterprises uh, across Sweden and uh, focusing a lot on kind of how do we, yeah, how do we build a great IT strategy? How do we create an operating model uh, to actually deliver on technology? And more and more, I was interested in kind of how do we actually adopt, uh, take companies into adopting new types of technology, you know, focusing on, you know, how do we actually change this? How do we set up this kind of innovative uh, ways of working? And how can we, you know, get this large companies? Because mainly that's what we worked with, kind of this standard large companies. And how can we actually, you know, both ensure that we kind of get a stable environment for everything that needs to be delivered, but at the same time being able to kind of manage to be faster and, uh, you know, execute on... Uh, on the strategic agenda. Um, so, so that kind of work at, at Accenture, where would you sort of, when you reflect back on that time, are there any common themes that you sort of learned or you saw that even if you went into different industries, that this was the stuff that really made the difference, you know, in, in your engagements? What, what was the sort of critical stuff that you can sort of... No, I think uh, my view is that it's a lot kind of on the focus and the, the priority, you know, to be able to succeed, you know, we need to ensure that we, you know, everyone is aligned on the priorities that we need to execute on and also to ensure, you know, the change management aspect of it. Mm. And, you know, understand that each organization is different. There is not a single kind of, you can't take a single blueprint to any company and say, you know, execute this, you know, we have the great framework here, just follow that and everything will be good. That's not true. I mean, frameworks are great and we used a lot of them at Accenture, you know, there are millions of frameworks, uh, but then you also need to, to understand them and what were they include, uh, you know, but how can we adapt them to the current and what's situation? what's the context? Is it yeah. a decentralized organization and culture? Is it decentralized? All this. Exactly. And also, you know, how do we, uh, I mean, I used to think of it now as kind of references, you know, how do we ensure that we don't miss any obvious things? You know, I think frameworks are great for that. Because then you can look at like, okay, this framework says I need all of this. Do I have some kind of blank spots which I can get inspired by, by looking at this framework? You know, then we need to think about, you know, is it valuable for us or isn't it? Uh, and when you came up with, when you arrived at solutions or strategies for the clients, when you worked at Accenture, was it always like, yeah, this is perfect? Of course not. Yeah. And what was the main, what was the main theme there when there were pushback no i mean it's pushback to all that comes at different levels you know it was very rarely that you know you were completely completely wrong and i think you learned it over time as well you know the anchoring process during this is actually extremely valuable to actually get the change you know sometimes in the beginning you know we could do kind of a four-week strategy project you know we were maybe four people you know delivering working super hard, delivering a lot. But then you realize afterwards, you know, 
how much of this is actually gone into the people that we're working together with. I mean, do they have the capacity to actually, you know, actually react to this and kind of let it sink in? And what does it actually mean what we're talking about? Or do they think it's, you know, good things we put on the paper? But do they actually kind of understand it? And do they actually, you know, the entire change management aspect of it? And I think that this, that's my perspective of the kind of the challenge with kind of strategy consulting in general. Mm. I mean, I think it's a, a lot of times uh, the kind of recommendations are great and kind of the insights are great. And I think the kind of assist analysis and everything is great. But then, you know, when it's a, such a short time frame and there's so much kind of output in that, I think a lot of companies struggle to actually do something great with it because it becomes kind of too much in too short time and you can only kind of absorb so much. But but uh, would you say, I mean, like uh, having been a consultant and being very successful in doing that with, with for, for several, for many years, and now you've been, uh, you know, in the line organization, so to speak, uh, has your view on consulting or have you sort of, on yourself as when you were a consultant, have you shifted in some mindset or philosophy or how to look at consulting or how to look at yourself or, you know, any, any lessons learned on yeah, you know, how you changed and how you view this? I've changed a lot. I think, I mean, also during my time at Accenture, I think I changed a lot, you know, what's actually, I mean, how can, how can a consultant maximize the value they bring to company? I mean, mm. that's, that's what they really want to do. Mm. I mean, otherwise, I hope at least, otherwise they should do something else. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but then I think, uh, you know, coming back to that, you know, I think we need to look at how can we have kind of longer engagements, which might not be as high intensity. You know, I know some of kind of the, the top management isn't really keen on that because they want you know, results soon. But I think for the organization to actually you know, understand it and kind of bring the change management into the kind of consulting work, I think is extremely important to be successful. So, so to get the long-term change. Because, because to get sustainable change yeah. and sustainable adoptions of new ways of working, even if you can understand it strategically and in a PowerPoint quite fast, you know, the nitty gritty tactical yeah. maneuvering for years and to, to fix the uh, blockers, you know, that, that, that is a different time of time scale or pace, I guess. Yes. Like I understand the concept, mm-hmm. but I don't understand what it means. Oh. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, it's that all over again. And, you know, of course, depending on the topic, sometimes, you know, a four week strategy engagement might be perfect. You know, should we take a, should we take road A or B? That might be suitable. But if we're talking about kind of uh, more kind of digital transformation type of activities where we need to kind of switch around an entire organization, mm. you know, I think kind of an eight-week eight <laughs> engagement is probably not enough. Not enough. Um, is there anything where you, like, that's obvious to you, to you now that you, you're thinking back on, on yourself back in those days at Accenture that was like, oh, why didn't I understand that at that time? Is, is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, of course, I think one of these kind of frameworks I talked about before, you know, in the beginning, I thought like, oh, this is perfect. You know, I have, I is, have yeah, the answer. I have the answer. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> in real life, it's not that, you know, it might be a good starting point, but you need to always kind of work with it continuously and adapt it. And then you need to understand more and more. You know, I think that's a struggle of consultants as well, because, you know, 
a lot of consultants are, are younger, may not have as much experience. Uh, they're very good at certain things. But I think also, you know, with time, as you do it more and more, you get those insights and understand, you know, how do you actually kind of adapt it and then kind of adapt it to the organization you're working for. Uh, and I think that's kind of one of the key aspects, I think. I mean, I think it was a great time at Accenture and I learned so much, kind of especially around the kind of communication side, how do you interact with kind of different stakeholders, how do you ensure that you target the message to the right people to kind of get your ideas through. And how do you kind of deliver your message? I think. And if you sum, if you think about that, summarizing, you know, so you went from university, right, into a really high achievement type job as a Accenture consultant, mm. right? How, how would you see that? What, what are the pros and cons of that career path to start there? Would you recommend it, or what are the pros and cons? No, I would definitely recommend it. I mean, if if you're interested in kind of um, seeing different type of companies, different type of problems, you know, also, I mean. At all of the, I think, larger consulting firms, if you work in the, in the kind of strategy part, there mm. is a lot of, I mean, people has, who has a lot of experience and that you can, mm. you can kind of draw on yeah. in your engagements. And I think also that's something, you know, if you go into that, but you know, use that experience, mm. ensure that you pull in the right experts. Yeah, yeah. Because then you also learn a lot. I mean, your knowledge curve can, you know, be exponential. Because uh, you have this huge network within your company, if you work in a company like Accenture, yeah. of course. And you always have kind of 50 people who's done the exact same thing before <laughs> at other companies. Yeah. And then you can get kind of the insight, the knowledge from them to kind of fast track your own knowledge. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also, you know, it, uh, the cons, I guess, I mean, it's, it's challenging. And I think, you know, if you, depending on what type of person you are, I think, uh, you know, being able to leave at a certain point and not seeing the end results is can be quite challenging as well, you know? It's like, okay, we delivered this great. We worked so hard for this uh, eight weeks, you know, to deliver this final pitch uh, to the kind of steering group of this engagement. And then, you know, you leave. And then you like, you're uncertain what happened with that afterwards sometimes. It's like, did they just put it in the drawer? It's like, oh, this looks great. This is definitely what you're going to do. Let's put it in the drawer here. You don't and get we'll execute it when we have time. Yeah, you don't get the same fulfillment as if you build a house. No. But I, yeah, please. Yeah, I, something that uh, touched me, what, what you said, is the anchoring process. If you were to explain that a little bit more, why is that so important? Like anchoring and people. But I think it's because, I mean, if we really want the sustainable change, I mean, if we really want to change the direction and change, you know, the way we work and, you know, what we do, I mean, anchoring with the people who's in the organization is kind of the most important part because otherwise, you know, we won't see sustainable change. I mean, then people will continue to work as they always done in general. Yeah. You know, there are always some people, of course, who really wants to change, but a lot of people is kind of, I don't know what to do with this. No, but it's, but it's as you said before, this sounds really great. I like the concept, but how does that mean I need to change Monday yeah. to Friday, my yeah. daily job in order to fulfill this. Yeah. That's not always so no. easy to understand because then you probably need to peel the onion three or four layers yeah. to get to. What to do get I to need to do tomorrow? Exactly. So, yeah. And uh, used to wrap up a little bit on, 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 uh, on, on Accenture. So what, what was your sort of career path within Accenture? How, how many years and you, did you do a couple of different roles or same uh, role? Or? It was seven years in Accenture. So I mean, same or similar role, just different kind of uh, 
know, you go from an analyst to becoming a consultant to becoming a manager. And that's uh, when I left, basically. So same, so same fundamental focus, but you in seniority. Yeah, and, and but then of course organization shift over time as well. So first I was part of kind of, uh, I can't remember what the names were, but then we were kind of, the IT strategy was close to kind of the infrastructure strategy part, which mm. is more kind of related to IT. And then, you know, business strategy and IT strategy was merged together. And then we were called technology strategy and, you know, <laughs> merged over time. And, you know, and towards the end I was working you know, trying to work more, you know, RPA started becoming a hype uh, <laughs> then as well, you know, and then. Uh, what year is this? This is about 2000. 2015, 15, maybe, uh, somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, and what is the trigger and what is the path when you're leaving? You know, what, what is making you leave Accenture or, or what is the opportunity that, what, what is happening here in order for you to? what is going on in your mind and, and how, how was the whole shift? What happened? I think for me, it was a lot about thinking, you know, uh, I just had my first kid and then also I was thinking, you know, okay, if I want to continue now, I was a manager and then you kind of lead the engagements, but you work day to day on the engagements. And then, you know, as you move, I mean, it's basically up or out more or less. And then, or, I mean, that's what you want as well. You don't want to be stuck in the same, at least not me. Yeah. Uh, so then, you know, it's, it was either to go kind of the senior manager partner path, mm -hmm. but then it becomes more and more sales and, you know, more and more that, and I'm not that interested in that, you know, I think, you know, I really like kind of getting my hands dirty and working on it. Uh, so that was kind of one. And then the other one was this, you know, how can I, You know, see get the role through. when I can see something through. Yeah. Ah, I know that. Leaving the, you know, I've been there, done that. To, to kind of <laughs> Did you realize that drive or that uh, that was missing even before you left? Yeah, I mean, it's always a process, you know, it it's takes time. It's not kind of something that comes in overnight. No. But then, of course, you kind of, uh, you miss all your colleagues and you miss all, you know, uh, because you have extremely, uh, you know, people are highly engaged, are willing to work a lot and who are, you know, really forward in trying to achieve something around you all the time. And, and uh, so w where did you go after Accenture and how did you, what, what was the, how did that happen? I went to Scandinavian Airlines and how did that happen? It was uh, basically, I think the spring of 2016, I did the, uh, the IT strategy for Scandinavian Airlines oh. as a consultant. Oh. And then, uh, you know, I had uh, a relationship with the CIO, you know, discussing, you know, his organization, you know, how can, you know, he, he improve. And, you know, then it was like, I have this uh, head of IT strategy role, you know, would you be interested? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I joined in the summer of 2017. Head of IT strategy. Head of IT strategy. And what did that entail at that point? You know, it was a new role um, and a lot of the focus was kind of how can we, you know, he needed support in how, how can we take, you know, better decisions regarding technology and the way forward and, you know, how can we actually ensure that we own the entire strategy going forward and how can we continuously work on kind of adapting the way we Uh, the way we do. So there was a lot of kind of involved in different types of pre-studies and there were some kind of large organizational changes going on, uh, which I was involved in, you know, regarding loyalty and other things. So that was kind of a lot of work. But then he knew I was going on parental leave in uh, January. 
2018, so that was kind of six months. So he knew when he hired you that this was in the cards. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, during that time as well, it was, you know, a lot of discussions around kind of AI automation or a lot of discussions mainly around kind of automation and machine learning. Uh, and how can we assess that? So right before I left for I was like pitching the idea, you know, we should start kind of an AI center of excellence here, mm. you know, because, you know, we need to, we see so many opportunities in this kind of, uh, the first focus was RPA because we see so many kind of manual processes that we can just automate. Um, so then when I came back from paternity leave and during that time, we actually created the kind of head of AI role. And then I got that as well as the IT strategy role in the beginning. So then it was kind of build up, building up kind of the first uh, AI center of excellence, you know, hiring the first people, getting the first projects rolling. And in the beginning it was a lot of RPA, you know, getting the first processes automated uh, and so on. This is about 17, 18? Yeah, this was the fall of uh, 17. Uh, and do you remember like when you got started, like what wh- what was your sort of beginning here? What was your focus? You remember that when you started to hire people and was that you just get the right people in or making up a business plan for the unit? Do you remember how you started? Yeah, I basically started with, uh, you know, two aspects. One was that we had some clear cases, you know, in automation. Mm. So one was kind of identifying you know, we need some people to, to do this. Mm. And then the other piece was, you know, uh, setting up the strategy, of course, you know, what should this be? Where should we go? What's the mission for this department? Yeah. And how, how should we scale it? You know, in which, in which order should we take things? And then it was kind of setting up, uh, you know, the first proof of concepts with RPA at the same time, kind of hiring the first people into the organization uh, to be able to kind of uh, work on that. But that was uh, yeah. has it been hard to find uh, the right people. Yes, it's always hard. But I think uh, you know I was a bit lucky as well. Um, I found an internal guy. It was uh, and he's actually left right now. Um, moved to Singapore, but uh, he um, you know he had the background for kind of eight years in SAS. He'd been at the lean office. He'd been you know in IT. So he kind of knew a lot of people in the organization and he had good, you know, knowledge about kind of, uh, how do we kind of the, the entire processes, you know, how do we kind of streamline processes and, you know, from working with lean, you know, it's, it's quite a good segue actually into kind of process automation. automation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was quite lucky there and he was kind of driving the whole kind of RPA journey. So, you, um, I mean, like, is, isn't that one of the key t- topics when you are starting up a new venture or a new domain or a new team that you need to find the critical first people who then can take accountability and have drive and motivation and vision on their own. Otherwise it sort of bounces straight back, right? No, and I think so. And I think also if you do it in a kind of a large organization, I think it's very good also to find some internal people. Yes. It has been there for a time that's actually, you know, knows people in the organization that has established relationships it's so much easier. Would, would you argue, and this is a really close to mind, uh, have been in the same conversation or, or deep thoughts. Is it better at that point in time to, uh, to find an internal person who can sort of build the bridges and who can do that? And then basically, okay, if, if I need to supplement this guy with hardcore technology competence in RPA, that's easy compared yeah. to getting a, an RPA guy in and he should get the whole SAS network 
in in one week, right? I think so. And, to, ham- so. and to hammer that point home, what's the risk of if you just create a new team with everyone from outside? What exactly. what could happen? I think I think you can succeed with that as well. I think it takes longer time. Yeah, I think it's. I mean. You need to build up those relationships. You need to build the trust, especially when we talk about, I mean, especially around RPA, I think process automation, and I think people are afraid of it a lot of times. You know, the people working in the processes, you know, are coming here to automate my job. <laughs> and, uh, you know, then you need, but if you already have the trust with someone saying that, no, no, this is not the goal. We're removing the boring stuff from you. Yeah. It takes time to know, pe- to get to know people and yeah. get people along with you. Uh, so you worked six months before you went on parental leave. Yeah. Yeah. Like just before you left, could you feel, uh, could you feel a personal change in comparison to Accenture now when you were like no. in a, in another type of environment? Not that much then because uh, I was still kind of doing uh, a little bit of internal consulting. Yeah. Strategy That's work, you, you were kind of riding on your own old skills. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. And now? Yeah, now I feel the change. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, also, I think it's a change as well in the type of mindset and how fast you want things to go, you know. As you came in, it's kind of you were normal to this kind of highly stressed environments where, you know, uh, delivery was, and then you came into the line organization and you realized, you know, things take time, you know. We need to build the kind of trust. We need to build, you know, the decisions. We need to ensure that everyone is aligned uh, to some extent. And, and, and this is super, super important, I think, because what, what's the change here? Or, or you know, the, the change in mindset here, I think, is profound. Isn't it that you're sort of shifting the KPI, so to speak, from we need to deliver a strategy to how do I make it strategy into execution and how do I make it stick? Because yeah. now you're a line manager, right? Yeah. And also, I think it's a, it's a mental shift going from getting constant kicks every eight weeks or energy yeah. boosts yeah. to living with not getting those constant kicks, but actually under like understanding of the long-term value and being fine with that. Yeah. But uh, I'll test you this. I mean, like I, I've done stuff now in Scania that we, we draw out the, uh, like a, like use case life cycle methodology DevOps, yada, 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 you know, simple Excel checklist, had it in the drawer since 2019. Mm. It's the same now. Yeah. And we could have, you know, the, the job is done in 19, right? No. <laughs> so basically maneuvering and putting the pieces together, getting to the paying, you know, it, it's a two year journey to do something that on paper is done yeah. in two weeks in one very, very efficient workshop we had. That is, I mean, like that mindset shift, am, am I here to do the Excel sheet and then it's my tick box and I get my paycheck or how do I g- get the mindset? How do I ingrain that into Monday to Friday? Mm-hmm. What are you supposed to do? Totally different ball game in money. Yeah, it is. And I mean, it's challenging. Uh, really challenging. Yeah. But I think, you know, I was, I've been, uh, you know, quite lucky in that as well, because, you know, when we started the kind of AI, it was kind of, I had kind of free reigns as well. You know, yeah. it was like, how do we prioritize the process we should do? It's like, we do it ourselves, <laughs> you know, which type of machine learning products, uh, you know, whatever comes to mind. No, I mean, a bit like that, you know, we didn't really have kind of strict steering and, you know, 
But maybe that's a good thing in the beginning because who who really knows when you're learning, right? Exactly, and that was kind of the whole idea behind it. You know, we need to start something. Uh, you know, especially kind of I think around machine learning back then. You know, we needed to start something. We needed to learn about what this was, so that we could understand how we can apply it and how we can scale it. And you know, if you don't know, then it's you know we can talk about cases all the time. It's better to kind of instead of doing this kind of. Let's assess the entire company. Let's boil the ocean to find the best uh, cases. It was more like, okay, here we have an interesting case. We have a business that actually wants to do this, and it seems to be valuable. Let's go ahead. And now you said something profound again, in my opinion. And this is the whole topic that sometimes is a little bit like, well, we can have all these great cases and use cases, but if the core business is not motivated for change and wanting to be a core driver on it, don't even try it. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, what's the roadmap to roll out this in the globe or whatever, you know, and and we, it's a typical kind of conversation, right? And then it's a little bit like, well, we should do it in this market because they really need it. And then, we, you know, business readiness, change readiness, yeah. this is a different ball game to really, okay, but who, where can we succeed? Because they, they are willing to do the hard yard to drive the change. Exactly. In, in my cynical, or not cynical, I mean, like my 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 personal learning curve has been that's the only parameter that really matters. Yeah. How, do you agree on? Or? I agree fully. I mean, that's has been my main criteria for selecting cases. You know, do we have a business organization that is willing to put up resources for this and commit to this? You know, otherwise, it's pointless. It, it must have. It must have been an, a huge asset. But you came from Accenture where it was natural to create business value yeah. and people value. Because we see organizations where that hire innovation people or maybe researchers that don't necessarily choose those cases and they mm. choose cases that are interesting. fun or interesting. Yeah. No, but that's been clear always. I mean, then that's better than it team. You know, if we, sure, we can most on the most interesting cases and we can deliver the perfect model for that case. But if no one uses it, it's waste. Yeah. But but you used to move ahead a little bit. So you 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 got into this role. The role expanded one step, adding you know the AI central excellence yeah. or RPA. But I think it's shifted more. I mean, like that's this has been a journey now for a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, after uh, I mean, I think it was uh, mid twenty eighteen somewhere. I also got responsibility for. Uh, for our kind of analytics, uh, so our kind of data platforms, uh, data warehouse, uh, data lake, uh, analytical tools, and the entire organization for that. So yeah. now we're moving not only in the, in the hardcore machine learning part, but actually the underlying data provisioning of, of different why. Yeah. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. And also kind of the provision to all the kind of analytics teams across yeah. the organization and uh, you know, ensuring that we have the right data in place. Um, yeah. So that was a kind of a, another change, which was quite interesting as well. And I mean, the idea was that, you know, if we talk about machine learning and data, you know, it's, it's not that, uh, I mean, they're quite closely uh, correlated. If we need to deliver great machine learning models, we need great you, data. You need great data, right? Yeah. So and then I think also, I think one of my key things has been as well, you know, it's more focusing, you know, we have a challenge we need to solve an organization. And then we need to ensure that we have the best way to solve it, regardless if it's an RPA, if it's a machine learning model, 
or if it's a dashboard. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's like, you know, the business doesn't really know what they need. We need to help them say, you know, okay, for this specific problem, we think this is the best solution. Sometimes it's like, oh, we want the machine learning model to do this. Well, that's actually, you know, better than with, you know, you can have a dashboard and yeah, I mean, like, like the you right don't need technology. the machine learning model. No. You know, we can take an easier path. Yeah. So it's always that, you know, how can we also ensure that we have the right focus? But, but, um, you, so to better understand a little bit, like, so what is the, how, how does the current organization work now that you are responsible for and how does it sit and what is the context of, of, of the larger, uh, SAS organizations? So yeah. It's literally two questions like what is your organization all about? And how does that fit? And what is the Let real? Take them the, the last step, which happened last fall. Yeah. Okay. One more step. Sorry. One more Do that step. first. Because then I also got responsible for our entire cloud infrastructure. Yeah. And uh, now we're know, talking our uh, kind of uh, <laughs> DevOps practice, um, or the kind of centralized uh, team for how we kind of drive uh, kind of development experience. Yeah. So, so to understand what's the boundaries of that compared to the other IT and, and, you know, so how does that organization fit into the larger context of IT and, and then the larger context of uh, SAS? Yeah. So basically my organization is kind of four parts right now. So I have the kind of the AI team focusing on, I mean, then we have an RPA team and we have a machine learning team. Mm-hmm. And then I have a kind of data and analytics team, which is responsible for everything from kind of integration to data platforms to analytical tools. Mm-hmm. And then I have uh, the you know, DevOps organization, which is a lot focusing on kind of uh, a development experience, uh, you know, and how can we build a kind of a new cloud platform for custom development. Hardcore uh, infrastructure is code automated, the whole shaboom, the, whole the, shaboom. Right, the right way. Yeah. Can, the I right just, way. can I just pause here? How did you know how to lead this, this like palette of teams going, coming from Accenture? <laughs> I guess you learn over time, yeah. but I don't know if I have a good answer, but you know, it's, I think it's also been kind of, um, I think the mindset and the way we kind of discussed it internally, you know, regarding, because a lot of this is kind of, uh, where we needed to drive change and, you know, where we needed to, to kind of shift a lot. And I think, you know, the idea right now is that, you know, this is, um, my team is kind of supporting, uh, the more kind of business oriented IT teams in everything they need from kind of infrastructure to data to, you know, so that they can be even faster. So, I mean, that's the whole kind of idea behind it. And then we have kind of, uh, kind of AI and analytics, which is kind of directly towards the business. So it's a, it's a bit of a mix. Uh, we're done the same, right? So I, uh, we work with in-size data backbone. So mm. one part is really data backbone in different ways, provisioning, and then you sort of, and no one really sees that. And then you move up in one leg and this is the insight analytics or whatever. Yeah. So I, I, so here you're meeting the customer on the real use case yeah. and here you're m- meeting almost the analytical teams. Yeah. Is that, I, I was assuming, yeah. Yeah, Something so it's like a mix. I mean, that's that's also the challenging part. You know, we have stakeholders from uh, from everywhere. Mm. You know, we have kind of internal IT stakeholders focusing. You know, uh, what do we what do we need here? You know, to actually deliver this kind of application or this service to kind of uh, our analytical stakeholders says like, I need to add this data to this data mart, and then you know, how do we prioritize that? Uh, so that's, uh, you know, it's a lot of challenges, but I think, you know, it's, 
is interesting and you know how can we kind of drive the same mentalities because i think the you know the more and more i i see it i think i see there's a lot of kind of uh, overlap or synergies between this mm-hmm. uh, you know especially on the kind of between kind of the when we talk about development experience and kind of the machine learning practices you know how can we i mean a lot of the kind of machine learning teams would benefit a lot by understanding you know how do we do what is the good development practice in traditional kind of application development or in web development or you know how can we bring that to kind of the machine learning but, but, teams but i think this is one of the key themes that you see on social media linkedin and and papers being written that we know we we have learned domain driven design or software engineering or microservices thinking over here to the left i'm a software engineer yep. and then we have people coming out of the bi data warehouse application type environment where you don't really you're not schooled to do software engineering you're schooled to use a business application mm. be it data warehousing and bi mm. so here we now start building and, and then i'm a data scientist by the way so so i'm more of a scientist so i use my jupiter uh, mm. notebook and try to put that in production so so here is a little bit like they are really converging in terms of software engineering practices needs to move in to make if data and ai becomes part of the production environment yeah. they need to be equally robust like yeah. build software right that's what you're saying yeah know. and equally i mean they need as much automation and, of course uh, you know they need cicd as well right yeah then, definitely co- and then you know they shouldn't have to care about environments they shouldn't have to care about you know all of that they should care about you know building exactly. great models you know if, if i'm a dead scientist i should care about building great models not to understand you know the environment or anything around it. So this has been a pet discussion of me and Anders about the hybrid organization we you we call it but to me it's like the central organization versus the Can I can I ask a question because I think that <clears throat> there is something that is a little bit more important here uh, because you're running right now AI RPA ML data DevOps cloud. So what is the, the per, uh, what is the relationship with the IT department and the CIO what do they do? <laughs> You're part yeah. of IT. No, I'm, I'm because, part, uh, so I, just to unpack this, mm-hmm. so we did like editorial piece a couple of uh, years ago back when we were investigating, for example, does uh, Google have a IT department? And yes, they have four, right? But the purpose of them is not to lead digitalization, rather to support the company with uh, the infrastructure and to make sure that everything is on mm. up and running. Then uh, on the left, you have the data engineering, the analytics, the AI teams, and et cetera, that are responsible for delivering value from the advanced analytical capabilities in the organization. Uh, but the C, uh, this was um, discussed quite a lot in 2018, uh, 17, 18, 19, uh, that is going to be the role of the CDO, the chief data officer. But in in, uh, in Nordics and in most of the countries, the CDO was not very well welcomed because it became like a competitor to the C, CIO. Um, so my question, just unpacking this, because this is the right approach, because you're becoming tech company by this, because you have a center of excellence for data analytics, which I is you. So. Mm-hmm. I think so. Right. And then the, the IT department becomes what needs to be the support, the infrastructure and making sure. So what is the relationship with the, the IT department? I'm part of the IT department. Yeah. So you are, so this is everything in the IT department. Yeah. So my, uh, so it's not separate. No. This is a very important, yeah. yeah. Very important good. understanding. Good. My, my boss is the CIO. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. So your boss is, I think, very smart, right? Because he has understood. She. She. I didn't know that. I, 
I should have known that. That's cool. Yeah, but 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 she has really understood that this topic they, they all fit together somehow. Yeah. So this really tricky. Um, typically, you can find oh, we have an, uh, someone is responsible for AI over here, and someone is responsible for the the cloud environment over here, and someone is responsible for the mm-hmm. for the data uh, for for the data warehouse over there, and and it becomes very very tricky because it's a value chain, right? Yeah. And and so I think I think. Um, from a Swedish uh, IT culture, if I, if that's the word, I mean, like we, we don't really have in uh, like in America the CDO role. We, we, we have, have a couple, we ha- right? We have around twenty. Yeah, we have around. I mean, like, but it, yeah, it is a title, but we have a plenty of them that are actually responsible for the entire. Yeah, but uh, but I I I think how to solve it in the way that it fits in the Swedish companies. I, I kind of think this is a good model in one way. Uh, I, think, I think we're also touching on a very, very important topic for Sweden, no matter what we call the title. And that is probably the relationship between the CEO and the CIO or CDO. And, and that's, mm. is that person measured on continuous value creation or just maintain maintenance? Yes, but it's, it's even deeper than that because the discussion at the beginning was how do we maximize the value of data, right? Yeah. And in order for us to, to measure the data, it needs to come into the financial, uh, you know, books on the end of the year. So that means there is supposed to be one person that is responsible for the data uh, in the organization. Either that is called like value realization, monetization, uh, utilization, what is the, whatever it is going to be, the value of it needs to be on the books. So if that is the case, there needs to be a person who is responsible for that. No matter if that is in IT or is that is from a separate point of view. Uh, but then it comes the complexity. Who owns the budget for the data? Right? Because if it comes from a, right now, everything goes to, to IT, right? It's for 5% of the entire um, it doesn't have to, it doesn't matter how much, how big it is. So the, 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 the main question is, do we actually have, do we need to have like a person that is responsible for the data as a separate unit or it needs to be in the IT? Because if the IT, uh, then IT is leading the digitalization. But, but uh, I think it's a mix, honestly. I think, yes. uh, you know, <clears throat> I think it's good to think about kind of the single source of truth that we need to have kind of one view of the data. Um, I'm not myself too concerned about how the organization and structure looks like in different companies. I mm-hmm. think as long as kind of we achieve the goals we want to achieve, and I think you can achieve that in many different ways. Uh, what I hope for myself is that we, you know, I think all of the companies need to start thinking about more kind of how can we work in more matrix structures, you know, focusing on kind of value delivery and kind of s- selecting the right talent in, in teams to deliver on a specific item or to, you know, set the KPI, you know, we need to deliver this business value. And then we, then it's, you know, we have people from, uh, you know, wherever in the organization to do that. Um, And I think that's the way forward. We can have data engineers from kind of a central data engineering capability, which has one platform and a standard way to do it, but combined with uh, kind of software developers, combined with kind of business experts, you know, some type of product owner, you know, everyone who. You know. I think this is super insightful because I think there's a big key in transitioning from traditional organizational chart to more of a system architecture to thinking when you yeah. design organizations where every nodes needs to be able to talk to each other, going back to the, the question of protocols that mm. are actually functioning where every device can communicate. Yeah. But mm. and, and, 
and here we talked about this in Data Invasion Summit and in the, in the, in the, in, the, in my opening remark, I talked about uh, how we organize around the data AI value chains, you know, r- literally being part of the core business value chain. And now in Scania now, I want to, I want to compare. And so we, we are going more and more to a separation between uh, IT uh, um, for infra platform versus domain teams. So literally, I'm responsible to, to build up a domain operation with data engineers, uh, integration and microservices engineers together with uh, machine learning and advanced analytics within uh, one of the core domains within Scania, which is the loan and leasing, and mm. fin- you know, finance and insurance stuff, right? But the way we are doing it now is I'm doing it in super tight collaboration with the shout out to Thomas Dersjö and, and, and uh, Staffan Wildelin in, in a, one of the core IT departments, which is heading up sort of uh, data analytics integration mm. and all that. So it means more or less that we are coming to a model where we are not trying to be build our own empire in, in a silo, but we want, we want to be a domain on the Scania data platform strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have integration platform strategy, API strategy platform, and then, you know, data mesh and, and big data. So, so the whole topic becomes more of a federated governance yeah. where, where the role of the platform team is different to the domain teams. And, yeah. and, 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 I, and for me, that becomes sort of, we had Anders Neumann here, uh, who is a head of search in or engineering manager of search in uh, Spotify. And I think that's a little bit, we're going for the feature of what's the value chain, who, who understands the business. Yeah. Because as long as we have the central team with one team with data engineers that should cover everything from making autonomous vehicles to insurance credit automation, KM, you know, it's too broad, right? Yeah. So, uh, so is that what you're saying that we need to go, this matrix is sort of, we have the technology platform stability and we have the value stream view of the services we're providing. Yeah. Is that and what the- back on the, the matrix, I think it was very interesting actually. So I might, matrix structure, what do you mean by that? No, I meant, you know, we need to, I mean, instead of kind of organizing ourselves <laughs> around, you know, a specific topic or, you know, we organize ourselves in the business, we organize ourselves in IT, you know, and uh, we actually tried, we have in IT now, which I think is, you know, one step forward to that. You know, we started to actually, you know, my peers in uh, in my leadership team, they're actually organized according to value streams in the business. And what is a value stream for uh, SAS? I mean, it could be kind of discover and book. Okay. Uh, so a very, very core part of the customer journey. Yeah. Order and pay, you know, yeah, yeah. it's... I mean, the core parts of the customer journey or kind of on the more operational side, which is where it might be kind of ground operations. Ground operation, fuel planning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's similar to that, you know, and, and how do we organize so ourselves you, around that? So, so when you say, when you say value stream is very closely related to the business value or the business delivery. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's so it's not a data value stream. It no. is a re, it's, it's a business it's a hardcore business view. Yeah. And what's the ratio of you? You guys going to the different value stream owners and suggestion, suggesting things and them coming to you and saying, we're going to do, do new things. What are your input? But I mean, uh, right now it's in a mix. I mean, we created this organization during COVID and I guess we can come back to, you know, SAS during COVID, which has been <laughs> an interesting journey. Um, but, uh, I mean, in the quick runs, we had to reduce 35% of the staff. Wow. Due to COVID. Wow. And then we realized, you know, okay. 
we can't do this by just using kind of cheese grater, cheese grater, you know, cutting uh, mm. over here. So we need to reorganize to be able to do this. And then we decided, so, so let's reorganize into value streams and focus on actually how do we create the value. We try to kind of ensure that the teams are kind of end-to-end responsibility, you know, pushing more responsibilities to the teams, removing centralized functions like PMO, like, you know, all of that. So we don't have that anymore. Wow. Uh, we don't have a centralized EA function. We don't have, you know. Uh, but it's interesting because in order for you to be, go in this direction, the whole company needs to go in this direction. Yeah, which hasn't really happened yet, which is a challenge of that, mm. you know, and that's, you in, know. You're in the transition. We're in the transition. Uh, but that, you know, needs to happen. And coming back to kind of the matrix structure, which you asked about, I think it's, uh, for me, it's about, you know, we need to have a way to ensure that we can uh, kind of keep the competences kind of intact and kind of upskill the competences mm. uh, while still kind of, uh, focusing the people on the value mm. and, uh, you know, be measured on the value and we can organize these competences into value streams. So what does that mean? Does it mean that some of your data engineers that come from your different teams are sort of placed out in the different domain team or value stream teams or how does it function in I practice? mean, it doesn't really function today, but I think, <laughs> that, I mean, that's, that's kind of where, where we want to go. That is the mission. Yeah. That's the mission. So we're starting right now. I mean, we're in the start of this kind of journey because it's also um, after COVID we decided, you know, Okay, we need to invest even more now and, and, we need and to ramp up and scale this. Oh, this is so fun because we are doing the same at Scania in different ways. And the, and, and one of the interesting angles is, is the tech stack or architecture supporting the domain driven value streams? Because that becomes an architectural topic very soon. Yeah. Not really. Interesting. No, no, but that's what we're working with as well. You know, there's a lot of things going on in parallel. And, um, I mean, we're not moving right now towards an organization, which is the metric structure, but I think, you know, that's the future way to go. I mean, how can we ensure that we both, you know, say kind of, uh, software engineers as a talent, mm. you know, if we divide them up too much into different teams and into different value streams and they have no connection to each other, then, then the platform stability is lost. Yeah. And, and everyone is doing their own thing. Siloed. Uh, you know, we, we come up with a technology landscape that is super scattered. It's extremely difficult for us to kind of move people around if we need to, to kind of accelerate or decelerate certain areas. Um, but if we kind of manage to kind of keep them together and ensure we can upskill them, we can provide them a good kind of career opportunities, you know, then we, you know, can be more flexible and kind of adjust over time. So, so is it more like a center of excellence and then you are catering the organization with all their needs, right? Or? Yeah. I mean, I think there is, there's different ways to do it, you know, and which, you know, which lines are you reporting to? And I think, you know, either you go for kind of the capability line where you say, look, okay, if I'm responsible for all the data engineers in the company and my responsibility is to ensure that we hire the best talent, we train them. Uh, we know we keep them skilled, we uh, ensure that they have a good career path within that they can progress within kind of the, their, uh, their role. And then we can allocate them to different teams. Uh, or if we have kind of the team structure steering and then, you know, create this kind of more kind of virtual central excellences across. Exactly. I think those are the two <coughs> different models, but, uh, yeah. And, 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 and 
this whole topic, you know, how you understand capability so you can build consistency in, in a platform of platforms, different parts of the technology stack mm. versus speed and autonomy in the team, right? And there, you're, you're always, there's, there's conflicting interests uh, here and you need to sort of federate to govern both in some ways. I mean, yeah. like e- either way, e- if you go all team, you need to federate so they, l- as a community, learn from each other. And e- if if you go competence or capability, you and you put them out, and you still need to. So it's a different steering. It's a federated model, in, in my opinion. Yeah. You agree? Yeah, I mean, it's a different steering, and also I think you know all the traditional organizations struggle with that. Mm. You know, also because you know when it comes to everything from kind of HR to performance management and how will that work? You know, if I'm uh, working within this value stream, kind of 80% of my time, but my manager is working over here, you know, how will that work? Uh, so it's all, uh, you know, there's a lot of kind of people questions to solve as well. I mean, if we're moving into these models, mm. which is more difficult because then your line manager might not be the one that you report to on a daily basis. You know, and how do we handle that? Because what you're saying now, and, and I think you said it before, that we need to get also into organization that fits architecture or, or vice versa. So it's a little bit like we have we have a we have a sort of some sort of star schema here of, of the problem of the ultimate organization, and it kind of looks more modular, domain value stream driven, and that means we need to have architecture that fits that. We need to have governance that fits that. We need to have budget and mandates on how we split our resources that fits that. We have need to have competence development and, and career path that's a split, you know. So I think if you really nail down that we want to go in this direction, you need to go 360 around the problem to make that work. And I want to bridge that as well, because I think Daniel is an excellent example that I'm amazed of that you have super deep knowledge in business, uh, IT, requirements, framework, and a lot of areas. But what amazes me most is that you understand people and yeah. what, where, where peop, how people, what people need to grow within this yes. framework. And I think that kind of leadership is needed. It's probably the future because we come from a world where leaders were generalists mm. and just said, yeah, okay, you're going to do this and uh, within this framework, but to understand, actually understand how people grow. But, but this leadership is very different because in, in, in a Tayloristic leadership, if I'm, if I'm going all the way down to the one end of the spectrum, you're kind of really competent in what you do, selling something, building something, uh, whatever. And, and basically IT is over here, right? And, and now T leadership needs to be a way more T-shaped we talk about, right? So you need, or even X, uh, I don't know, even X because, but I, I kind of believe in the T-shape that you have, you have your grounded somewhere. A lot of leaders need to be grounded somewhere, depending on where they are in the organization, but they need to have a way different experience of the holistic approach. And, and also it means a completely different leadership that before I was leader, leader for my KPI in my silo, where I had a team that was very homogenous. And then I could lead in one way, but now I, in the one hand side, I need to lead a cross-functional team. So I'm not the expert in nine out of the 10 roles. And ultimately, if I want to harvest and scale, I need to be more of a salesman of my stuff. And I need to be a harvester of all the good stuff everybody else is doing. So instead of having leadership very sort of 
I focus on my KPI and my siloed focus. You almost need to be more focused on maneuvering and then the autonomous team is doing the work and you you have a different role. This is yeah, a different yeah. role. And, and get the respect and that's where the, the deep knowledge comes in. Now, yes. I, I, I just want to... I'm completely amazed. If I <laughs> no, but I think, I mean, the, I mean, if we're truly talking about becoming kind of digital companies and tech companies, then I think, you know, uh, probably Skåne talks about that. I yeah. can guess, you know, we're talking about that, but I think it's also, I mean, it's a major transformation for the people in the organization. And also to understand, you know, if we go into the agile teams and the agile, you know, structures and we want autonomous teams, you know, the leaders main role should be to remove barriers for the teams. Yeah. If you, if you talk servant leadership and, and all that, yeah. but, but maybe this is also a maturity curve that, uh, in the first instance, we say digital and we need to have digital transformation. And the knee jerk reaction is that this is a technical transformation. This is something with tech. So, you know, it does, you know, but ultimately to make that happen, which is only enabler, it's all about the people. It's all about the governance. It's all about the orchestration uh, of our work and, and our mandates. And very, and, and if you get that right, they will sort the tech out. Yeah. Do you agree with that? I mean, like, so I, I, we are, we are, it's easy to leave the digital transformation in sort of a tech. Uh, we need to, and, and then we, you know, look at how our budgets are spent. We, we're spending a lot of money on the data and the tech, but ultimately 50% of the problem is something else. Yeah. I agree completely with that. I think that's the biggest lack of understanding in our, in companies today, and that is when the internet rolled around, most companies just put a digital layer on the existing way of running companies. Mm. But now what you're do talking about is running companies completely differently. Yeah. Whereas most are still just, okay, we want to efficient, make our current way of doing things more efficient. Oh, we want to move it to another channel, yeah. a digital channel, yeah. but it's an analog underlying fundamental operating model. Yes. So I would like to take a, another approach just to spice up the thing mm. because that is my, I'm the catalyst in this thing. Um, you mentioned that the, the former uh, leaders were generalists. I don't think that they were generalists. If you were a salesperson, you got promoted to be a sales director. That mm. doesn't mean that you are basically a generalist. You're just basically a sales director. You know how to sell. Do you know how to manage people? Discussable. Maybe you are, maybe it's a skill that you need to educate. So I don't think that people were generous. They were specific. Um, I also believe we, we, me and Hendrik, we started this uh, game of chess 2015 in Vattenfall, one of the small rooms there. <laughs> and we were discussing basically at that point of time, there was a lot of uh, discussion about if you remember. So it, it, at the beginning, it was a corporate control and then it was BI and then it was business uh, analytics. And all of them, they had like a, this, uh, uh, there was this, uh, what is called um, um, strategy, which was called a business intelligence center of excellence. Mm. And then it was called business analytics center of excellence. And then it was data science center of excellence. And now it's AI center of excellence as well. The idea was that either you basically make a centralized or you make a hybrid approach where you have basically ambassadors in different domain. So you have like uh, people that are 50% or 20% working within the sales function, or let's say 80% working a sales function and 20% working within domain center of excellence. Okay. And um, uh, unfortunately, all of these uh, strategies failed. Every single one of them. You think? Yes, absolutely. They didn't exist. 
you had actually one in uh, SAS. Uh, it was run by a, uh, uh, doesn't matter, we take this in after, <laughs> after work. Uh, but it, it, don't, it, it was not that it didn't fail. Uh, it was just because it, it, the approach was, uh, uh, it, it was a hypothesis that it will work. You take people from different departments, they're going to be the, the ambassadors, they're gonna implement everything there, didn't work. You mentioned as well that this is a technology change, you forgot about the skill set. It's not about the people, it's about the skill set. But do you think that in Google, when you have, or you mentioned Spotify, right? They have the search engine. That is a domain, it's mm-hmm. the sales function, it's the marketing function, it's the R&D and mm-hmm. et cetera, right? In that team, they have a data engineer probably, uh, uh, analyst and maybe a visualization guy. They have service designers, they have psychologists, yes, they have yes, everything. Exactly, so that means that, so the, 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 the curveball that I'm trying to throw here is that these tech companies are working on a product uh, or a function type of a base. That means that the, the skill set, it is in the function. So if that is a search, maybe that in SaaS is the, the HR function. Yeah, right. but, 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 but you need to go all the way around here because I think to some degree here, when we talked about center of excellences, uh, you know, uh, uh, version 1.0, we did that on top of the analog governance and organization. True. And we, had, we were trying to fit data and find the ways to fit data into the old dogma. And I think we were not ready in 2017 to really talk about hardcore understanding value streams and all that. And I think a lot of stuff has happened. Not only, I think it's many drivers here, data, cloud, everything is used. So many things are happening that basically mm-hmm. the forces are now aligning that look, we can't work at the same way. Yep. And it, what is really interesting is that what does it take for an old company that's been really successful for hundred years to truly change their operating model? Mm. I, uh, I think two things, and I think you're a great example of this. I think you can start a center of excellence or a lab or whatever, but the reason to why the company is doing it, is that because, is it, is it an excuse not to change or is it actually value creation? And well, is that lab based on what you do or why you do it, going back to your value streams, which are centered around the, the why, not the what? Okay, good. So uh, just to clarify, I'm not against it. I'm not pro about it. The question, the question is, the question is, do we believe that in the future, these uh, capabilities are going to be function-based or they're going to be in the center of excellence serving and catering all the organizations? That was my actually curveball here. I think, but that's what I come back to. I think mm. it's the metric structures. I think if you talk about Spotify or if you talk about Klarna and everyone, they're extremely clear kind of a path if you're an engineer. Even if you belong to Spotify, if you belong to Search, if you're a software engineer, you have a clear kind of career path. You have yes. clear kind of yes. communities and governance around that. And, you know, you have your, you know, community across the different value streams. And I think that's kind of what's most challenging in the traditional companies is that they're so used to the traditional hierarchy structure, yeah. which makes this extremely difficult. Because a lot of people then, it's very uncomfortable. But I mean, when I was at Accenture, I think I reported into three different dimensions. Yeah. 
you know, so, so then you're used to that. I mean, you had your project manager, you had your kind of capability lead, and then you had your kind of industry, and then you. Yeah, you know. but, but just so I, just so I, so we can unpack what we mean with the matrix here. Are we in some? I mean, the basic matrix is that you you have a discipline of of your core competence. I'm mm. a data engineer. Mm. I, I love to do data engineering stuff, and I'm world class in Kafka or whatever mm. I'm doing. And then the other dimension is for what purpose? Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm doing credit automation mm. or I'm doing fuel mm. planning. Mm. Is that what we, uh, th- that's the fundamental. But I want to stretch that. Okay. Beyond good. fuel planning, they need to understand why for the, for the product yeah, yeah. or yeah. for the value. But that's, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. But what I'm saying is that one, one dimension. So, so basically that's what I'm saying. We, we're talking about the data value chain, a data and AI value chain. And within that value chain, ultimately you need to need, you need to know the value you're creating for your customers. And if you want to stretch that for your customers, customer, this is the one dimension of value. Now, in order to produce value, that is where data AI software as it, as the core of that delivery, we will need a team that understands the core dimension of that domain versus data engineering versus machine learning engineering versus UX or service design or whatever. So you have now a cross-functional team at the core of that value chain. And within then per se in the cross-functional team, we're all in a cross-functional team working towards the same value, but I have a discipline that I'm here to contribute with. Mm. I, isn't that the core matrix? Yeah. And I, I mean, that's, that's my whole idea at least. I like it. And you know, because we can have the disciplines, you know, we're, we're great at say data engineering and we're great at data engineering and we work a lot kind of in the same way. We try to, you know, facilitate that so that we don't get this kind of everyone doing their own thing. Mm. Um, but then also, you know, organize that into kind of value streams, which is kind of across the organization. It's not only within technology. It's also the business leaders. It's everyone that, and that kind of value stream team or teams yeah. should have, you know, a clear business KPI that they're measured on. Mm-hmm. Why is it that we're delivering this? And this is the core, right? So even if I'm a data engineer or I'm a service designer, I need to understand what, what are we trying to achieve? That's the, what you're saying, right? No, yeah. And this is exactly. a problem sometimes when, when I, we have different agendas, different KPIs, because we have business over here and we have, you know, classical IT demand, IT supply. I mean, like that, that falls apart, right? Because you have, sometimes you have KPIs, which are very much driven from another agenda, FTE in IT or, you know, run spend, lowering run spend of our IT systems that becomes a pseudo. But if you p- keep it all within the value stream, uh, I think this is key, right? Yeah, but I think it's it's difficult to achieve, you know. But I think that's you know that's what it's we're also going that, for. You know, if it's if we want to set up these cross-functional teams, it's also being that you know everyone should be able to contribute to the to the how. You know, maybe the leader set the what. You know, this is what we should achieve. But then you know, it's this it's entire team. You know, everyone, if we have kind of a digital sales specialists or kind of. A, marketeers or, you know, whatever skills we have in the team, but everyone can contribute, you know, I believe, you know, a data engineer might, you know, okay, I know we have this data that we can combine with that. 
probably someone in you know in today someone in marketing doesn't know mm. and then they come with you know other things that might be very valuable but they might take longer sometimes it's the low-hanging fruit we are missing today but 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 let's I, I want to try a hypothesis here. You know, we, we said like th- the first generation of uh, uh, center of excellence had a hard time sort of succeeding, right? Mm-hmm. I propose to you that the, it, it is not that at all, but it's because you will need to have whatever you want to call it as a center of excellence for data engineering. You will need to have a discipline hub or discipline mm-hmm. community, how we excel our best practices in data engineering in general that the, this discipline needs to come together. And then of course you need to have the other angle of, of the core domain or the core value you're in. So I propose that, well, I don't think the center of excellence idea is dead. It's understanding it from the discipline versus the cross-functional team and the value stream. Okay, I, I can concur with that. There is another factor uh, that actually helped in uh, diminishing the value of all of these BICCs. BI, uh, business analytics after that, everything ca- happens so rapidly. So you prepare the center of excellence in 2012 for BI to service the finance because that is what it was servicing at that point of time. Marketing was not actually even a part of the BI because they, they run their own things. They had everything in Google analytics. Then in 2014, 15, we get like the rise of the, of big data. Everybody is talking about Ubers and everything is going to, you know, perish. And suddenly we have business analytics. Now we need to serve the entire organization with analytic capabilities for everything from R and D to marketing, to sales, to finance. So the capabilities of that person or the, let's say the purpose of the BI center of excellence diminished in two, three years, no matter if you basically succeeded with that or not. And then we have 2015 rapidly. Now we are going to 2018. People are going to Europe, uh, sorry, um, the world economic forum. Everybody starts buzzing about machine learning. Suddenly there is a data science center of excellence. What is that? It's a different type of capability. So what you did with business uh, analytics is not longer feasible is not longer there. So I think that the technology is changing so rapidly and we are following the trend so rapidly that is actually confusing and it's really uh, hard for all of these people that have put so much effort and deliver it to actually follow that, you know, because it's a, you are running right now a couple of things and et cetera, right? And we still, let's say that you have a machine learning model that you need to put in production and it's going to be in the production in six to seven months. But in six to seven months, the business factors, macro perspectives have already changed. So we are moving to a next business Mm. objective. But isn't that uh, one of the core reasons for doing what what you are doing to continuously increase your capability to see patterns? Yes. Mm. Yeah. And and, and I think a little bit, maybe the... What, why it wasn't working generation 1.0 in 2015 was that this whole matrix of value stream thinking and embedding engineers was not really there. I mean, like the, the first attempts of describing this chief data office, uh, you know, it looks like an ivory tower to mm. me. It's like I, I'm going to sit over here with having my center of excellence. And you're going to flip, uh, you know, fluffy remar- r- r- remind, r- remarks to me and I'm going to provide value to you. Or even worse, uh, we will sit in our ivory tower and we will get, give me all the data 
And then I will provide magic to the domain experts without knowing your processes. I mean, like that is to me uh, why we failed the first time. If we understand that don't throw out the baby with the bath water here, you need your discipline, you need your domain, uh, you know, you need a home for your data engineers, you need your home for your data scientists in terms of expanding their un understanding for their core role. But then it needs to be applied and the yeah. applied part is the part of the matrix. So if you, if you don't get the organization to buy into that, but you have this sort of flipping over the fence, it will never work. So I think that's the profound learning that is coming. You are trying to do it. We are trying to do it. Spotify and these guys, they figured that out a couple of years ago, to be honest. But I think, I mean, no one is uh, perfect here. I don't think exactly. even the giants that we're talking about is perfect here. No. And I think, you know, it's not an easy task to solve. It is difficult. Then how do we merge this? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, and, and because we are, I mean, like I, I, I always say this is way harder for the legacy analog enterprise because we need to contend with a domain, which is not data native. I mean, like we, we are engineers in nuclear or we are engineers in building combustion engines. So here we have two different cultures that needs to merge. Yes. My, my joke is that always, is uh, my, my joke is always, if you, if you try to do AI in, in medical, uh, we have one guy speaking Latin and another guy speaking Python. Good luck with that. Yeah. Or even just one guy speaking foot and the other guy <laughs> speaking ear because we're still educating because I want to get your perspective of a bottleneck that I'm seeing. And that is you're obviously educated at Accenture in learning like you've got to work on different industries, mm. learn to see different perspectives, but we still educate all our kids to become a title and we educate in a certain way across all our education system. And then when people are adults and get into industry, then we start talking about people need to continuously learn and, mm. and evolve. Can the companies take that sole responsibility of continuous learning or do we need to change our entire system? Oh, good question. Okay, so now let, let's let, let's move into the bigger pictures questions. That's let's a tough start here. But, good one. Uh, no, I think you're. I mean, to some point, I think it's it's accurate. I mean, we need to ensure that everyone needs to continue to learn. Otherwise, you know, especially right now, I mean, things are changing so rapidly. So it's you know you can't expect to kind of do the same thing forty years in a row. But your your core question: Can we put that responsibility is solely on the corporates or the organizations, like if it's in public uh, sector, or what's the alternative? I mean, uh, just the other week, uh, there was a big conference called the Future of Democracy and the principle of uh, Stockholm School of Economics uh, referenced that most of the rest <coughs> of the world have majors and minors on a higher level education, mm. whereas in Sweden, we focus on one area mm. alone. And having those just those two perspectives makes a huge difference. Whereas in engineers and developers, you have a more maybe natural curiosity for continuous change because the field is so new. Mm. But in other fields, it's, it becomes harder in the organization because people tend to stick to their, their professional identity. And what can, can schools and education system or society make changes to support industry better? I definitely think so. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. I think when I also kind of from my center days, we went to this kind of strategy college in, uh, in Chicago. And then, you know, all the analysts from across the world was there. 
And you know, you talk to the people from the Canada, the UK, and it's like, what did you study? Well, I majored in arts and, uh, you know, and then it was like, everyone was kind of hired into the kind of uh, uh, consulting firms for kind of either studying kind of, you know, engineering or, uh, you know, I would study for five years, engineering or economics. And everyone would be studying for five years yeah. doing their masters. And there they were like, no, I did uh, my bachelor's in uh, in arts, and now I'm here. Oh, that's cool. When you, when you hire and look for people, is academic titles an important criteria? No, not specifically, I would say. But I think, you know, the challenge we have, I mean, now I'm being open and honest, I think the challenge we have is that, you know, SAS comes from a highly outsourced you know, we had a lot of kind of financial troubles also, I mean, long before COVID, you know, we were on the verge of kind of extinction in 2012. Uh, so then it was a large kind of outsourcing. We tried to, you know, CGI uh, or something like this. What? Yeah. CGI or some, some other co- companies, some other companies. Yeah. And then we also, I mean, we had a known company called kind of SAS, SAS data, I think it was called with a thousand employees. That was sold. Shared service. Yeah. And then, you know, right now we're kind of in a phase that, you know, we are, we have started to kind of see that, okay, we need to hire this competence right now. Why do you think you need to hire them? I, I fully agree with that, but what was the, how no, is the main reason is because we say that we're kind of vulnerable mm. in that, uh, you know, we don't have the talent and also the speed. You know, if we have our own own developers and where we have our own developers, you can see you can achieve a much higher speed and the small things are easier to fix. And, you know, we can actually focus on kind of the value creation, you know, rather than talking about, you know, what's in this contract, what's not in this contract, exactly. uh, which is not that fun. But I think that's also the challenge coming back to your question regarding recruiting is that, you know, if we want, we don't recruit that much straight from university or straight from schools because Right now, we don't have that many experienced people. And I think if we, if we want to go to the route where we, or we want to go to the route where we hire more directly from the schools, but then we need more senior people on board to actually work with them and train them. If you have a step one and step because two. If, in you journey. know, say if I, I would be a kind of a manager without any developers right now. I mean, the first developer I hire, it's difficult for me to hire someone straight from school. Yeah. Because if I'm not a developer myself, you know, how will I ensure that they have something valuable to do? And I think that goes back to all the skills, you know, also when we see the, when we have recruited, uh, you know, that's even more experience, you know, if we had recruited data scientists out in the organization, that's great. We're going to hire data scientists. They're going to do great stuff for us, but then we have no one to actually steer them and, you know, actually understand what, what the data scientist does. It's very difficult. Is that also part of a bigger transition, mental transition for an organization to go from what you do to why you do it? I'm comparing, if you compare Tesla to Volkswagen, for instance, Volkswagen see themselves as a car company, whereas Tesla see themselves much as a, I don't know, tech digital first company. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, think I, so. I guess if you would ask the management of SAS, the natural response would be, yeah, we're an airline company, yeah. but maybe... It's a transition to getting people from point A to B in a fantastic way company. Mm. It's that company. I want to, 
So, um, <laughs> because we are on one in 30 minutes, want, usually mm -hmm. this question comes around like 30th minute and etc. We have been talking quite a lot about um, Century and you moving to SAS, but we never actually presented uh, what is SAS oh, true. and uh, what SAS and AI has to do together. What are you guys doing there? No, but I think, uh, I mean, um, I don't know which audience we have right now, but SAS, I think we're, uh, we're one of the largest carriers in the Nordics. I mean, airline, airlines. I mean, before the pandemic, I'm going to talk numbers before the pandemic, because <laughs> the numbers during the pandemic is not as fun. We had kind of 30 million passengers per year, um, roughly flying to kind of 300 destinations, I think. And we have around 100 aircrafts. So that's kind of the size of uh, SAS. Um, and if you come back to your question regarding AI, uh, I think... Or data in general, right? Data in general. Analytics, it doesn't have to be AI, right? Because you're doing RPA as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, right now we're doing kind of across the company in different areas. I think some of the, some of this has been uh, quite highlighted in, uh, I think we're at a build conference at Microsoft, uh, talking about, uh, I mean, of course, then it was after COVID, so it's not a physical conference. But then, um, you know, we did the fraud scoring for Eurobonus. So trying to identify fraudulent patterns for claiming your bonus points, mm. uh, which is interesting kind of across the Star Alliance. <laughs> uh, so that was kind of a very... Cool. That is actually cool. I, didn't, I was looking at the different case studies that could potentially pop up in this discussion. And fraud detection, I have not... Marked it, and it's so obvious one, right? Yeah. No? no, I mean fraud detection has been one. Um, another one I think is very kind of cool from both kind of a sustainability angle and from a cost angle is that we've been looking at kind of uh, fresh food optimization. So how much fresh food should we bring on each aircraft? Cool. And and uh, I mean the model we have right now, I think we um, reduce the waste with sixty percent. That's, that's a good one. That's a good KPI. Yeah, that's a good KPI. And, you know, it's both from kind of... Um, many angles. Yeah, it's from many angles. So I think yeah, it's... It's a great cost. As cost, well, sustainability, right? yeah. waste. Yeah. That's the other reason I don't get my extra meal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> you can order. Actually, I think it was only like... Um, 1% outages of meals increased, something like that. But still, uh, yeah. Uh, and then uh, recently we've been looking at... Uh, water on the aircrafts <laughs> that's a sensitive topic right <laughs> no but also you know when we fly long haul you know how much water should we actually carry on board because we thought that we we often landed with kind of 50 percent water left mm. you know every weight uh, on the aircraft uh, you know you, we use more fuel as the aircraft weighs more so it's actually if we manage to count the water levels on the aircraft <laughs> we can reduce fuel yeah. And as you know, I don't know if you know that, but can you guess, you know, on, um, in 2019, I mean, how many percent of our total costs were fuel? Oh, I think we, we had roughly 40 billion revenue. 30%? 50. No. For no, you have, you have, you have staff costs and all that. for sure. 30? 30? No, no. Uh, almost 25%. 25%. So we had roughly 10 billion. That is a 
That is a lot. That's so a lot. So yeah, I think yeah. the, so like if we can if we can really tackle the fuel cost, yeah. that, that's a good business case. Yeah, it is. And I mean, that's also why, you know, some of this, you know, it might sound, you know, oh, we're going to analyze, you know, how much water should we bring yeah. on all our interna- intercontinental flights. But actually, you know, it might reduce... If you have forty, if you have twenty-five percent of forty billion, and then you reduce that with two percent, yeah, that's a good business. I mean, case. the water doesn't reduce it two percent, but it's you know. But then, but maybe that's how you compound it up. How yeah. you need to do it in all different angles. Yeah, we do. Analyzing what drives weight and what drives fuel. Yeah. And then other machine learning topics. You know, we have. Uh, it's a lot. Uh, you know, on the customer side. You know. Um, the traditional kind of customer segmentations, you know, uh, customer the destination scoring, you know, which type of destinations do we believe you want to travel to? Um, we also do kind of purpose of travel. I mean, trying to assess why you want to travel. Is it business or is it leisure or, you know, a lot of those models. And, well. and I, I need to ask you uh, a very, a very, uh, um, a question that is sort of, um, with an angle, I mean, like we, we, we together in Daredex, we work with Robert Luciani, who works a lot with optimization, the, the traveling salesman mm-hmm. problem. So how much work have you done on sort of route, route optimization, optimization, or, uh, I mean, like screw optimization and all that, the whole planning of, of, of the logistics of everything to optimize, you know these hundred planes and, and these hundred crews or sort of thing. If we talk from my team, we haven't done that much. I mean, there's also, um, those are extremely complex problems. Yes. That's uh, the point. <laughs> and there are, I mean, we use a lot of industry solutions to actually do that today. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's a very interesting area. I mean, going forward as well, but that's, you know, also coming back to, um, said a long time ago, you know, regarding also, you know, where is the business ready? Yeah. To actually look at this. Um, and also I think, you know, if we're going to talk about kind of planning and scheduling, and I think, uh, for me, uh, my goal now is that we can start up with together with our OCC. OCC is the operational control center oh, yeah. to work with them. Right. Yeah. And they're responsible for everything from for 20, 72 hours before the flight until, you know, the flight lands. So I have a topic for you for after, after work. Yeah. This is super cool stuff. Uh, no, Shout out how, to Robert. <laughs> how can we kind of automate that and how can we, you know, in, improve that even more in the decisions we need to take, you know, say we have an aircraft on ground because we have an engine failure. Yeah. So which, uh, you know, what should we do? You know, just, yeah. you know, the decision making action for yeah. this problem. What's, what's the next big action? It's not that simple. No. You know, when taking in consideration crew, aircrafts, passengers, you know, oh. But then I, times. when you buy planes, I mean, you, I know you bought new planes recently. Uh, do you buy I get, them? Do you lease them or you buy them? Well, whatever. It's a mix. That's it's a mix. Talk, you use colloquial. Uh, are every vendor, I guess there are not a hundred different providers of airplanes, but are Two. they at the same level of data readiness or this, is it someone ahead of the other? I think they're quite similar. I think also when you take into consideration that we normally keep an airplane for roughly 20 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the new aircraft we buy, uh, sometimes I call it, it's like a server with wings. Yeah. You know, I think uh, the new kind of A350s, I think they generate kind of 50 gigs of data for an intercont flight. Uh, so we have quite... Uh, and do you 
going back to, back from the general to the nerdy, do you transfer all the data or do you transfer the no. predictions? We don't transfer all the data. Uh. Uh, and that's, you know, that's another topic we're discussing, you know, what should we transfer, what shouldn't we transfer yeah. and what should we keep, what shouldn't we keep. Do they have deployment capability of models on the planes? Good question, actually. I Ooh, doubt analytics it. On edge. No, it's, I mean, also, yes. I mean, uh, I like it, like it, like it. <laughs> the, the, I mean, the what airline industry is highly regulated. Yeah. Uh, what you can and what you can't do on an aircraft is, you know, it's uh, extremely complex and everything needs to be approved by different authorities and, you know, mm. what we can and can't do. And also with aircraft manufacturers, you know, it's, uh, uh we can't really do that much. Um, to the but, but let's go down this rabbit hole. I, I need to humor Anders Arptig. He will be really mad with me if I don't uh, ask any nerdy question at all. Yeah, he will be. He will be really upset. Uh, what this is, like, this yeah. is, this so, is not going good. So ve- ve- this is not going good. <laughs> no. So could we talk a little about your tech stack? How, you know, what's the fundamental tech stack or strategy around your tech stack that you are working on uh, right now? In which part? <laughs> yeah, let's let's unpack it. Right, I like it. Let's start with the cloud. Yeah, no, and, then, I mean, and, and, uh, and maybe let build that, build it up. No, I mean uh, right now we have a lot of um, we're quite focused on Azure, mm-hmm. and I mean the main um, reason is that we actually I think we're one of the few companies actually I think we have ninety eight percent of our business applications in the cloud, mm-hmm. uh, so we basically don't have any on prem footprint anymore. That's super cool, by the way. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, uh, we've done a great job in transitioning that, and it's also a strategic reason, reason for that, because we didn't own any data centers before they did. So in order for us, you know, and we're heavily outsourced. And so also to be able to kind of not having to kind of do a migration if we also switch providers or if we need to switch data center providers, it's actually better to be in the cloud. Yeah. Uh, because it's, you know, then of course it might be a lock-in effect as well, but I mean Azure is the base today, um, and then we use uh, you know, on the data side. It's yes. a lot of kind of the um, the Azure native tools. Right so you, you have is a basic strategy to try for for the data engineers to basically let's see how far we can go with the Azure native. I mean like you, Kubernetes on Azure or whatever Docker's on. Or is that the core thinking to lo- to use the native? services as for it has been and i mean that's also something we're discussing right now you know in the you know in what uh, to what extent should we use the native services versus kind of open source and others yeah uh, to become more flexible and what uh, you know should we have a multi-cloud strategy or should we go multi-cloud i mean that's another discussion topic that's ongoing um but, you know, I think the most important part is, you know, how do we create the value from it? Yeah. You know, we can discuss yeah, yeah. technology in all, uh, you know, forever and everyone will have the different uh, opinions. Exactly. Um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, since we have a strong collaboration with Microsoft, I think it's a third as well. You know, we've gotten great support, um, honestly, to actually to, to create this and how we set it up and how we work. You know, when I started the first machine learning project, mm. You know, I'm not a developer from the beginning. You know, I brought in some data scientists as consultants. I had no idea what we were doing. But, uh, you know, then we also, but then also we had, you know, great support from our vendors and, you know, okay, this is what you need to set up and this is kind of how we do it. And then, you know, started to learn from there. 
And I think, yeah. The phase of innovation. You start and you see where you get, and then you learn something, and then yeah. you go back and you no, think No, and I think, important. I mean, that's been my approach the whole time since we started this, uh, like the AI journey within SAS from a kind of a technology perspective. It's been like, okay, maybe I was, I was started saying all this, okay, we want to build a spaceship. We want to have everything perfect. <laughs> Yeah. That's what we always do. Yeah. But then I say, you know, but right now we might know that we need a spaceship, but we don't need to understand exactly how the cockpit will look right now. Yeah. You know, we probably need an engine first. So let's start there. And then we can, you know, figure out the rest as we go when, when we need it. You know, because, you know, back uh, a few years back, people started like, oh, how will you do multi-model management? You know, your <laughs> consultant's calling you and how will you do that? It's like, that's not my problem right now. So I don't need a solution. And I think, you know, when I need the solution, it will probably look a lot different than it looks today. Yeah. yeah. But this is interesting because the whole tech stack topic, you, you can get into these pseudo discussions on platform or uh, replatforming. So mm. all of a sudden we need to do this major technology shift and we need to spend five years to use fixed infra or we need to, you can hear it in data, by the way, we need to do this data governance project for five years to clean up my data. And, and the, the really going best practice I think is uh, in some ways think big or have some general strategies, but then start small and scale mm. and, and just in time lit up your, your platform, yeah. right? Is that, that's what you're saying in yeah. a way. Exactly. So and I think, you know, that's the way to go. Because otherwise you're wasting forward. money, right? In, in, in used infra that you don't need, that you haven't used yeah, I mean, I, I think the same is, you know, any technology piece we do, right? If we, if we take it to a big scope, I mean, that goes for machine learning as well. Mm. You talked about scheduling earlier, you know, if I say now, oh, let's start a project where we will uh, do the entire scheduling using AI. Mm. And we started now. Okay. We can deliver in two years. No, mm -hmm. starting one corner you of know, the problem. Yeah, so it's like the same thing. There. If I wanted to go with OCC, I was like, let's start with building a great delay prediction. Very concrete. Yeah, and, and then, it, you know, if we manage to do that, we can build on the next steps. But, uh, but I think this, this is quite important because this is one of these uh, misconceptions, right? Or this, uh, we, we call it the data area, the, the dilemma that they, what you need to work on the one use case at a time perspective because it's in the ones and zeros of that use case. And then you, you then you have the other side of the spectrum. Oh, we need to build a perfect platform and we need to have it synergized and scale and all that. The problem is uh, like if you do every single use case in isolation and big, and big build fragmentation, that's the mm. problem. But if you, if you only talk about replatforming and enterprise architecture, you get nowhere. Yeah. And you get, you know, so there is a middle ground. Yeah. What is that? What is the, how, how would you define the middle ground? I would define it as just those low hanging fruits that create quick value, s find the commonalities exactly. and the requirements for that. And I would also say, you know, building on because we want to build the kind of platform in the end that we can, you know, enable everyone to be automated. You know, I have this vision for my, you know, um, for my, for my development experience team is that, you know, we should have a CLI where they can basically go in and like, I want to create a, you know, it could be, I want to create a machine learning model and they just click enter. And then the, you know, environment is been up for them. The <laughs> first pipelines yeah. is there, you know, everything is ready for them. You know, that's the kind no of division. Code, no code AI, right? Yeah. No, but no, but, but then they can, then they, you know, get the first deployment for the, mm -hmm. for the Python scripts, you know, they get the data connectors, you know, and then they can start, you know, writing the Python code or, 
whatever this they want is to run the infrastructure code that when you want to go here this is why you go into the next generation cloud setup now yeah but because you try to automate things as far as possible from the beginning yeah it's a mindset shift from craftsmanship to factory that basically this is lawless uh, pet peeve by the way mm. uh, that that you know the, the the google is so far ahead on factory thinking mm. uh, so and this is what you're talking about so it's, uh, I, i don't think it's like it's 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 for the real data scientists or data engineers they should be you know there's a difference to work on the infra to have infras code that someone spins up and then you have other data engineers who works on the real problem it's not like what you're saying necessarily goes to the business people but it's it's the data scientists working on the domain problem they should have smooth in terms of infra yeah but there's sure the smooth in terms of you know not just infra it's kind of the tooling around yes. it and you know if you talk yeah. about production it's yeah. logging it's you know it's, it's so much it's, yeah. it's everything yeah. around it so i meant but that I think, with me yeah, infra and you know building building the platform for me is not that you know i don't think we will have that in the first launch Exactly. I think we need to build that together with the use cases we do, and also to see, you know, can we have the can we have backlog items on the teams? To, you know, okay, we need to focus on this right now and contribute it back to the rest of the exactly. organization. I think that you so uh, go first. So um, I, I have to come back to my point because I think this is is uh, a little bit interesting here. So everybody's talking about value, right? But in the same time, what you see that is happening in enterprises right now, everybody is building that mothership without actually knowing the use cases. You said like start with the use cases, right? So if you start with the use cases and you said like data, uh, what do you need? You need data. Okay. So what do you need uh, as a data? You need a data engineer, maybe the data scientist in a sales, right? So you take like one project at a time. You build you build a use case. Now we have second use case, third use case, fourth use case, sixth use case. Oh, now we need to build the organization because now it's scaling. That I can understand, but having organizations first to think about like the mothership and then the use cases. In the future, we might have this and this and this. For me, it's a little bit like it's challenging. It doesn't look right. Oh, but this is this is this is really challenging because if you if you but go, you see my point. You are talking about like we are going to build a center of excellence, but you are in the same time talking about building use cases. Mm. Why don't we start from the use cases and then when you need to build a center of excellence, then you build it. Why do we need to build first a center of excellence without even knowing which capabilities do you will, you will need in a different use case? Sure, but I guess uh, I guess you need in order to not only focus on the immediate value creation because you need those. I don't know moonshot, but at least a little bit. Who is doing moonshot from okay, the enterprises? But, okay. but at least more visionary to actually put requirements on future scalability. You need to that, create no, that. This freedom. is the keyword. Create that freedom of thinking. Yeah, the, the key the keyword is that is is this is this is this curve that you if if I only work with one particular use case, I can cut a lot of corners to put one thing in production, right? Yeah. And and then I, if I do that many 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 times. You know your maintenance cost and your complexity of running it because you don't have the automation in place and all that. Mm-hmm. You have your value curve is peaking in the beginning and then it flattens out. It's very simple, right? Yeah. You have orphan analytics. You have or orphan data pipelines. You know if you want to go the other way around and you want to build it in such a way so you have industrialized reuse and sharing. And when I say industrialized reuse and sharing. It's not only on about the data. It's about the algorithm. It's about the infrastructure as code. Yes. If if we want continuous integration and uh, CI/CD, 
I don't want every single fucking team to invent that from scratch, reinventing the wheel 10 times. So I'm going to set that up, right? I get it. So now you have some sort of scalability tax. But what are you setting that upon? Yeah. So then, then all of a sudden now you come to this matrix that someone needs to think about platform perspective versus the value core core value perspective. Because if no one thought about the platform perspective, we will build data pipelines in Excel. That's what we've been doing for 30 years. No, so this is the balancing act, I think. Yeah, and this I think, is in I the mean, back part. to point, I mean, I, I agree to some extent. I mean, we don't need to build a large platform if we only have one use case. No. Yeah. No, I mean, that's... Or yeah. three or five, maybe. Yeah, or three or five. No, and I mean, I think that kind of goes back to the point that, you know, we, we need mm-hmm. to ensure that we can do both at the same time. You know, as we scale, we need to build out the capabilities we need for that scale. And, uh, and I mean, if we're talking about that, you mentioned that we, you know, we're right now, we have this, you know, we have uh, our entire estate in the cloud. But now we, you know, realize, okay, that was built for actually lift and shift, you know, um, and more of a kind of infrastructure. We as- built it to offload the data center and not to scale data and AI. Yeah, not to, fair? Uh, not to scale application development in general. Mm. You know, the whole kind of DevOps movement, okay. you know, end-to-end responsibility. No, we, we, were lift, we were going out of a physical data center. That was the core yeah, idea. Yeah, it's basically lift and shift for the other IAS stack, yeah. you know, from a virtualized on-prem to, yeah. to virtualized in the cloud. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but now we realize, you know, that's not really, that environment is not really suitable for us when we want to move into kind of, AI, as you mentioned, you know, where we want and or kind of application development in general. Are you so you know, hardcore? Where we want that. You're so on it, Daniel. You're and so then, and then we, instead, you know, we say, okay. Holy shit. Let's build a parallel environment from the scratch. And then we start with, you know, a single application. And, you know, let's build it for their needs. Exactly. And then, you know, as uh, we want to move the next application there, let's expand it to, uh, to their needs. And of course, there are some central capabilities we need to build from the start. You know, we need to have firewalls. We need to have, you know, etc., uh, etc. Et yeah, yeah, but exactly. then, you know, the, the the idea is to scale it as we need it, but not um, to not to kind of. I can't hold my breath because you know what you are highlighting now, in 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 in, in this sort of stuff that we've been working on and what I've been doing in 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 uh, Scania is trying to, and this is hard, man, and for people to, to sort of, to get to this. It's, it's, it's a really simple concept, but if you imagine that you have your, your old, their, their dilemma, right? This is the operational use case. Let's go super fast and be anarchistic and use, move on the use case. And then, and then you have enterprise scalability over here. This is the bipolar understanding. And then we're trying to find the middle ground. So what we did in what within our peer community and what I'm pushing in Scania is that we we take this bi- bipolar view and we put that on an x axis and, an, and on a y axis concretely right on the, on the uh, on the y axis I guess I'm not the math guy <laughs> <laughs> on the y axis I really put all my use cases so I, I put out all my value streams and I'm gonna put down my va- operational value creation real hardcore bottom line business value what are we trying to achieve and they become the vehicles that's the use cases that I want to solve mm-hmm. and then I put my data and AI DNA on the x axis and then basically what w- when we're creating a project or, you know, the next release train, we are, we are basically taking a couple of user stories, which are related to the core value, value creation. And then we're taking, making sure the relevant data and AI DNA use cases are, is done 
at the, at the right time. So basically, even if we do one case, I really want CICD for that first yeah. case. Or when I do this first case, I really want to nail down the, the, the methodology for design thinking. And then, and then it becomes a, compl- a continuous journey of harvesting from one use case to the next use case. So whatever we have done on the first use case, we package whatever we think is data and AI DNA. And then we go into the next use case and hopefully it's even in the new domain. Wow. Then we can take what they've done in one domain. So this becomes federated governance and becomes the use case is the vehicle, yeah. but we have a sort of D- data and AI DNA tax. So we, we, we are not cheating we are doing it right and we are maybe doing it 30 percent more expensive because we're doing it right to scale and if we do that in every single project and that becomes mindset you you you're taking this bipolar problem and making it into a sort of a trajectory yeah for the future i mean very pragmatic same thing you know that's what you're doing i think within all the development teams and all i think what we you know all industries have been struggling with you know it's the you know Okay, we, we're going to work agile and we have these kind of feature teams and then everyone just pushes, pushes new features. It's the same with the data teams, you know. We always want new data, we want new data, new data, more data, <laughs> you know. But, you know, we also need to ensure that, you know, these teams get kind of cycles to allocate to actually kind of improve what's already been done. Yes. Yeah. You know, because otherwise we just keep on building our technical depth and that works for a while. But then, you know, every, every feature or every new data point that needs to be added just takes an, you know, additional complexity in time. You know, the, the time to deliver a new data point or a new feature is goes like this because no one is really, you know, refactoring what's ever been done before and rebuilding what's done before. And I think, you know, that's also part of why I think it's so important as we, you know, get kind of, everyone aligned i mean getting the business people aligned as well to understand that yeah that you so have that, a different so, cycle because yeah, so you that, need to think about we can't this. allocate all time to build new features or just add on new data sources exactly. or kind of expand the data sources. where we also need to add kind of 20 to 40 percent of our time to actually kind of refactor yeah what's yeah. already been done and it's i think hard. that we are now getting into um we, we are already on uh, two hours soon, and yeah, we, 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 we just actually started the good thing. <laughs> it's about democratizing AI yeah. in the organization. Do you have time for two questions or one? Yes, and Let's I have go, like a, at Let's least go, like, um, I haven't even come to the goodies, which is basically the future. Web3? Yeah. Another no, two hours? Oh my God. <laughs> let's, let's, let's move with the democratization of AI because I know that you want it. No, I, to ask I, I, I don't know. But ki, ki, I, I actually, Kai, okay. Kai, Kai has question. several questions, but I also want to, me and Kai, you, you have a very good question from your AI Sweden hat. We yeah. should have time for that. Yeah, I have, that was my second question. My first question is just from an airline industry perspective. It's a, it's a rare mix of being very regulated, but very competitive. Yeah. Other industries have the benefit of other, either sharing research that make the entire industry leapfrog or just sharing ways of practice. Maybe mm-hmm. banking. Yeah, maybe banking. But it's still cr- credit model, like fraud models and stuff like that. How much collaboration is there within the airline industry on within your area? That is a good one. Ooh. Uh, to some extent, uh, I mean, uh, especially within the alliance, yeah. uh, there is, I mean, I talked about the fraud case earlier. 
you know, there it's been very interesting for the other carriers to actually understand what we're doing because they're like, wow, are you doing that? Um, so I think, I mean, within the alliances, I think there is quite a lot of collaboration. But then, you know, honestly, I mean, we use the same suppliers. We buy the same tools. So, yeah. I mean, in some sense, I mean, there is a lot of sharing across yeah. the industry as well. And, you know, we have the same conferences. Yeah, okay. You know, IATA is the same governing body for everyone. And, you know, there is collaboration in there as well. Yeah. So it's a bit of a mix. How much industry research is there, if I'm going to take it, Anders, a little bit? Because he's always calling for more industry research in the Nordics. I think there could be a lot more. I mean, especially in the airline industry in the Nordics, I don't know. I mean, particularly in fuel savings. Yeah. I mean, that should be a hot topic. Maybe not this week when it's Black Friday and all that, but <laughs> we used to that. Conf- you used to do conference on that. It was called flight operation. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Very good. No, but I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an industry that's interesting because there's not that much competence outside the... the I mean, there aren't many Nordic Airlines. There's uh-huh. a few. Not many on the scale of SAS. No. And then, you know... Um, so it's it's always challenging, and I think the industry research is not that uh, you know big. Yeah. It's difficult to either, to kind of find great. Well, that was, that's a good segue to my other question, and I'll put on my AI Sweden hat. Uh, AI Sweden, I mean, is tasked by the government through Vinova to accelerate mm. the use of AI in Sweden. Mm. What uh, what can AI Sweden help Scandinavian airlines with? No, I mean, I think one part is kind of. Uh, the people aspect we discussed before, you know, how can we ensure that we have the right competences on board and how can we train the right competences on the right skills? Um, you know, then it's not, you know, of course, when you kind of hardcore data scientists, which is, you know, super into kind of the data science piece, but we also need kind of data scientists who, who is, uh, you know, who wants to expand and is really interested in how the business works. You know, and I think, you know, the mix of that, you know, how can we drive these different competences? And also, not, it's not only about kind of the data science, I think. I think for everyone, how can we be more data literate? But, it, but, if, it, but if I put, if, if I put the, the picture even bigger, because AI Sweden for me is basically ultimately grants from the government and, and it's government um, tools in order to accelerate AI, one of them. So what tools do we need as corporates that comes from, uh, that is government funded in order for, uh, that you can re- really utilize? Uh, I think uh, data. Open data, is it, it, that's one of the topics we're talking about. I like yeah, that. Yeah. I think that's an interesting, you know, how can we get access to open data? Mm. Um, it might be difficult. Uh, I mean, if you look at it, it's going to be technology. Yeah. Access to your supercomputer that you have, fancy schmancy thing. I think everybody can tap on that. But, I mean, for the most, you do over, we need You already mentioned talent. Yeah, talent. I mean, do we need supercomputers? I'm yeah. curious about <laughs> talent. Is it only finding new people or also reskilling, help with reskilling and so support with reskilling internally? No, I think both is needed. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, I think uh, we need to educate everyone yeah. in data. I mean, it's not just, you know, people who are going to work as data scientists or data engineers or analysts. I think, you know, we need to educate everyone about how do we interpret data. Valerie Logan at at Gartner coined 
uh, in Gartner, information as a second language. Mm. And, the, and the core concept is really, we all need to know data and be data literate, mm. relevant in detail to the role we are performing. Mm. So it means if you're a data scientist, you're one of the geeks who really need to know a lot. Yeah. But the CEO needs to know it in order to understand the decisions he's going to make. Yeah, but that's the same, you know, I usually talk about, you know, with my, I think sometimes my employees think I'm, uh, you know, a bit uh, you know, poking into the details. And I usually tell them, you know, the reason... The pink elephant in this, like, what is that? Yeah, mm -hmm. but the reason I do that is also because I want to understand on the level so that I can understand what is complex and what is simple. Mm. Exactly. Because then I can have better discussions, you know, to other stakeholders. Mm. Then I don't need to go ask someone every time, you know, is this difficult or is this simple? Because then I'm just a middle layer. And then I just keep on passing so you information. Mean you, so yes. in order for you to, I mean, like, because then you are one part, you, you're a stakeholder. Yeah. And the level of data you need to know is actually way deeper than other stakeholders because you need to be able to carry the story from your team. Yeah. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. So you need to actually go deeper on what you, you know, not to do their job, but in order to do the storytelling and then pedagogically maybe frame it yeah. for someone else. Uh, exactly. And then, uh, you know, I think that's relevant for all leaders. Okay. So, uh, I will, uh, build on this because we need to close with something and we haven't even touched about this and it's related to what you do and it's related to the future because this podcast is also like a time capsule about what we are doing right now and how this is going to impact the generation in 10 years from now. So from that point of uh, view, I have three questions. The first one, how will aviation look like in 2030? How will the users of that uh, aviation look like in 2030? Probably my daughter. I mean, she spoke English before she spoke Swedish. Not because we taught her, because Ryan from YouTube taught her. <laughs> uh, we have a problem with Ryan, <clears throat> but that's a different thing. Uh, and the third one is, what are you right now doing to prepare yourself for that future from an AI perspective? That's a good question. Just to complicate it while you're thinking, okay? So I read uh, today, I did the research about the AI trends. And this is what I found. So first one, uh, mixture between uh, ATM and UTM, which is air traffic management and unmanned traffic management. Oh, he's done his mm. homework. I haven't. Okay. So <laughs> then it's like a mixture between unmanned uh, aircraft flying and normal flying. AI in a grand handling. So f uh, fuel op uh, optimization and uh, they had grand uh, uh, ground handling, scheduling, etc. Airport security monitoring. Probably. I don't know how this is going to go with GTP. Biometrics probably. Yeah, biometrics and etc. I don't know how they're going to sort this out, but uh, AI assistance. So it's basically interesting. It is um, sound assistance that are helping the pilot instead of like looking at the data and stuff like that. You know, the, the dashboard is the, it's saying like, well, now you need to change the course to this and that and whatever it is. But isn't that kind of obligatory to what you said before about kind of self-driving airplanes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, it's halfway so, there. Uh, aircraft health management. This is good because this is already there. It's predictive maintenance, mm. right? Probably you work on that as well. Then it was um, interesting that uh, uh, Gatwick started with reducing delays by implementing AI in every single one of their ground control operations. 
Super good. Then it was um, Finland has some air taxi flight, uh, good things there. Ra- radar display worldwide. Uh, that was a new one implemented in 2019. First time, first time in, in uh, Lisbon or something. So you have like a cloud base and you can see the worldwide radar for every single flight, right? And then it was uh, diversity in av- aviation that it's a huge part. Obviously, so everybody is like uh, working now to get a little bit more female into aviations. Uh, <laughs> I don't know um, AI part. Yeah, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the AI part. This but is it, the aviation it trend. It has because we need a little bit more people, uh, female, especially in the technical part. And then you mentioned quite a lot of uh, uh, fraud detection, waste management, water detection. And then we had decarbonization and cybersecurity. So these are the, the top trends mm. that AI will bring. Right? A few trends. A few trends, right? So <laughs> I, I would just buy you time until you figure out the question. How will the aviation look like? To repeat, how will the aviation look like in 2030? who will be the customer, how will that customer look like in 2030, and uh, what are you doing today to prepare for the future? To be honest, I think 2030, was that eight years, roughly? Yeah. Roughly, right. I think, yeah, you know, on a general level, I don't think there will be much difference, unfortunately. I mean... Cool. Yeah, uh, no, I mean... I'll, like, kill everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, if, if you talk no. from a kind of an airplane perspective... Yeah. Will I mean, we have a lot of electric airplanes in, in, in 2030? No, I don't think so. Would you believe that? I you're, mean, but you're working, on, you're working on, you yeah, know, you're working on, you have collaborations with yeah, Airbus. Yeah, we have collaborations with Airbus to kind of create a kind of short, this uh, is short distance, short right? distance flights. And what's uh, the a- ETA? <laughs> I think it's roughly 2030. I mean, no, seriously. I mean, because, you know, it's not just the challenge here is that, you know, developing an entire new aircraft is not that simple. No. And also when you take into consideration, you know, uh, because we don't have the fuselage in the wings, yeah. you know, you don't, where should you store the battery, you know, how the weight perspectives, so you, you know. start from scratch. And then you ways. need to kind of get it approved by all the authorities and you know, that you're allowed to fly it. And you know, it, it roughly that, takes 10 years. Isn't that weird when you can create a rocket company in less in 10 years? Mm. Yeah, but then you don't have any passengers on it. I think that the whole- Well, uh, they've had a few. Yeah, but how many yeah. times did they crash and burn? I mean, <laughs> that's, that's the thing. I mean, no, so it's, a bu- it's a budget thing. Yeah. 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 Not with people, just unmanned. But uh, so, would you believe it's going to be drones or unmanned uh, aircrafts or unmanned piloting going on? I think that will come. I think it will come first, kind of in the freight part mm-hmm. of the aviation industry. And then it becomes, you know, how willing are we to fly on an un- unmanned vehicle? I yeah. think that's we that's fly all the time. I think it's eighty percent. It's automated. It's. Uh, I was reading today. It's actually the it takes the person basically to fly the airplane and then puts it in auto mode and then he lands it. Yeah, but uh, the thing is today, right. you know, it's basically fly by wire, right? So it's no no intelligence at all. No. So I mean, if, if something happens, then then you're screwed. I mean, with current autopilot. So that's True. you know. Even if, even if they fly themselves mm-hmm. a lot, Human you know, center AI. As, as soon as something happens, that's not, you know, according to what's been described in the flight path, in the flight path. And how will the service look like? Like this, imagine we are in a flight now, uh, from, uh, to Stockholm to Malaga. Will it look the same business class? No, I hope that 
Yeah, I mean, of course, they're probably based on different business depending on people what selling like with the juice, like what they want to drink and stuff. Like that. Probably not. I think that will change a lot, and I think the entire kind of I hope that the entire airport experience will change a lot. Yeah. You know, you had that regarding so. security, and you know that's also you know biometrics and you know discussions on how can we get kind of a touchless airport yes. experience. Yeah, I'm hoping for so it. you don't and have to interact with anyone. You mm-hmm. can basically go through. I think it's. Um, I think it's uh, in uh, one of the kind of airlines in uh, based in uh, in the UAE, you know, Dubai or Emirates, or I can't remember which one it is. You know, they, they actually have implemented in the airport a tunnel, which where you go through an aquarium, and uh, then they check who you are. Then and they you check who you are because then you go and look at it, and then you can get a good look on your face, and you can yeah. do it through biometrics, so you don't have to go through. You know, mm, security nice. because then it already know who you are. Yeah. So I mean, I think those things to, to kind of make the trip easier from for that. And then I exactly. think that I, I think, think so. I think you know how can we kind of expand the simplicity from kind of going from your home yes. to your destination yes. and back again. And into uh, a merger between train and plane. It's two cylinders. Yeah, just train and wings. plane, or taxi and train, mm. and you know. Can you check in your baggage in the taxi? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, so basically, yeah. so you can start so a, you start idea, your journey right? when you leave your home yeah. and no worries. Yeah. That, I think that is a better experience than many things. Exactly. Or if I can just lie down and sleep like yeah. in the fifth element on a plane, I'd be happy. Um, well, yeah. I mean, just fly business. And so yeah, okay. yeah, <laughs> you can do that. Let's move to the second question. How, that how will the customer look like in, in uh, 2030? What they will be demanding at that point of time? It's going to be your kids and my kids flying. They want iPads. <laughs> uh, I think they will be demanding a lot more. I think, you know, the whole thing we, uh, we are so button generation, you know, yeah, I think we're the whole thing we're so used to. We kind of, I, I mean, I, it's all, it all takes time, you know, when you, when you're going to fly and you transport yourself somewhere, it's difficult to kind of, unless we invent teleportation, you know, I think <laughs> it will be difficult for, you know, to be able to be really good. But I think, um, you know, it's all about that. How do we kind of integrate the experience together with the things we have on ourselves? Mm. You know, we have the in-flight entertainment systems, you know, as we're used and it was really cool, you know, back in the, but now everyone has their iPhones and iPads. Yeah, exactly. If SARS yeah. has the, its own Netflix, so when, as soon as you, uh, but it's a huge, into the, the plane, plane, this infotainment is a huge difference now where, where you can see some, some has not really cared so much. And then you have a couple of the airlines who's gone bananas in terms of giving you 30, 50, 100, some really fresh movies and, and a very good, I mean, like uh, infotainment experience uh, for people with kids. That is a blessing, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it was interesting. So the, this holds for a, that part. No, but how can we also then merge it? You know, why don't we have the same experience as in a hotel where you can yeah. you know, use your phone and kind of exactly yeah, on a Chromecast? I mean, no. if you look at our kind of European flights now, and then also in the cont, you know, we have internet everywhere. Exactly. So I mean, I think uh, not everywhere, but okay. no. But the idea on the airplanes, you know, especially within. Uh, I think it's it's a bit better, you know, if you go within Europe um, due to satellites and everything. Uh, but then the idea is that everyone on the aircraft should be able to stream Netflix on their phone. So that's the capacity we have. Uh, and, and this is actually quite simple experience that I have my content I like. I have my apps I like. 
So the only thing I really need to do, and I don't even need, I need Bluetooth in order to get whatever I have on my phone. Yeah. Okay, it's okay, it needs, but I want that on a bigger screen. And by the way, in order to get my phone to work, I need satellites. Yeah. Great stuff. We have a new company. <laughs> Find a name right now. Log in. Make it up. No, and I think, you, but I think, you know, what I've been talking about internally, and I don't know how to achieve it, but, you know, how can we think about, you know, we're talking about the customer experience from type of, uh, you know, when you're booking situation, but how can we make the journey a great experience? Yeah. I think that I like is the it. key, actually, because you were mentioning before why everybody building the rocket ship, but that is the rocket ship necessary? Because what is the purpose? Why are we building mm. a rocket ship? Because we want to travel from one place to another, and then we want to optimize our customer experience mm. how we get in there. So customer experience, I believe it's uh, important. Yeah, I agree. And, I think, and most you know, of the time, the most annoying thing is actually how do you get to the airplane? When you get to the airplane, it's still okay, right? You sit down, uh, everything yeah. is done. When you actually land inside the airplane and sit down, it's, it's fine. It's great. But between the, I, I just uh, traveled I from so. uh, Macedonia or North Macedonia, what it's called right now, from Poland. Uh, it was terrible. The whole experience around yeah, the airplane. Yeah, because now you have like a, no, not that the airplane was beautiful. No, everything was great. After. They didn't have a internet. It's really, really mm. weird. I'm used to. Uh, but in, uh, we landed in Poland. And everything was fine. Everything was good. I mean, they were uh, interesting enough. Everybody speaks Polish. Nobody speaks English in the country. Uh, sorry. Um, uh, and and uh, so one vaccination checkup, second vaccination checkup, third vaccination <laughs> checkup. So like how many vaccination checkup are you going to make? You already took it from the beginning. Yeah, you, I mean, you it's, should have it's the data, data by now. Right? But this data should be concurred with the, the flight agency, right? So I got like when you come there, uh, as soon as we landed from uh, from Stockholm, there was like a armed people that were basically selecting, do you have a uh, corona uh, pass or not? Super great, nothing special, right? And then you go to police, uh, what is called like uh, the border, right? And you wait in a queue and you wait in a queue for 45 minutes. Until then, I could have had like a coffee, spend money in their coffee shops or uh, duty free and etc. That is wasted money for me completely. And the worst thing is that on the right, <laughs> you have automized doors, right? So you basically scan yourself and you can go in, but there is nobody manning them. So therefore they're closed. So you need to wait in a queue. <laughs> Then you go inside. But that's, it's a diff, it's a it's weird like, system. Like, a, uh, like imagine if you were to set up a, a restaurant with a great idea, but you're forced to work underwater. Uh, yeah. That's, that's no, a bit like that. That's I mean, yeah, that's a great that, airline, no, no, but you're forced uh, to yeah, work I mean, that's, a, that's a challenge. I mean, uh, also when we talk about the things, you know, we want to touchless travel. No, it's not, it's not only us. I mean, no. we need to get the airports aligned. We need to get everyone else. You know, but, in that we need to get the customs aligned. You know, it's but your bottom line conclusion, I, th I think it's valid. That what is the fundamental change and shift we will see in the next eight years to 2030? It has more to do with the airplane airline uh, customer experience. No, the customer experience outside the airline. That actually there is a huge difference in the airplane as itself. Yeah. That's your prediction. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. There is a report, uh, uh, AI, AI Fly, it's called, by IATA, mm. released in 2019, when they're talking about the big market trends, and they're talking about open data, European open mm. data, when everybody basically share data, so you, they want to make this seamless and et cetera. And I hope we're going to come Because see, the, yeah, the, I mean, the, the touchless will need seamless. seamless. Touchless will need seamless. It's all about data. If they share yeah. data, everybody, then is, everything is going to be fine. My experience yeah. would have been much better. 
No, but that's the thing, and that's what we're discussing with the airports right now. You know, how can we share more data together so that we can make the customer experience even better? Mm. Because right now, we don't know if you pass security. Mm. We don't exactly. That's the problem. That's the real problem. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I mean, like we we for that. Yeah. 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 We had so many more questions. He didn't Uh, answer how they are preparing for the future, but we will take that. You know, after after work is not. I will take it after. Two more questions. You know what they are. Let's close. No. So I I mean, like we're running over time here. So. So many more questions and we had some philosophical questions and some more, but I, I'm, I'm really happy with the conversation, the way it went, because we had some really good tips and tricks. And I, 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 you know, not tips and tricks, maybe is a good word, but we had some really good insights and, in, you know, what, what is really important in order to succeed the whole matrix and all that. But let's now move to the last two standard ending questions that we love to ask any of our guests and is the number one is what is next in your life? What, what, what's, what's happening sort of, are you are something major or privately or, you know, work-wise or something exciting? No, I think you just get hope, uh, get out of this kind of, uh, small, oh, this, ki- podcast, small this, this podcast now, this small <laughs> kid situation. <laughs> You know, the small kid situation with all the kind of being sick leaves and everything, you know. And then, uh, you know, on the other hand, you know, the main is kind of the exciting journey we're on now at SES. We're going to invest heavily in kind of technology and, you know, skills and, you know, ramp up significantly, uh, you know, and how that will look. Yeah, so you have so so you have an exciting couple of, you know, a roadmap. You, yeah. you know what you're going into in 2022 and yeah. it excites you. Definitely. Cool. Okay. Last question. Who would you want to recommend to, for us to have on this podcast? So we have great guests like yourself. Good question. I would actually say, uh, Erik Fredriksson. Erik Fredriksson. Who is that? Who is that? that? He's, uh, he's vice president for intelligent services at Securitas. Ooh, I like the challenge. Uh, what's your angle with, to Eric? A friend of yours or someone you He met? was actually the one who hired me to Accenture back in this. Ah, so an Accenture. Yeah. I love that. And, I, and I, I will send the invitation to Eric. No, Shout out to Eric. Him. If you're listening to this, uh, expect the email. So no, yeah. we met, uh, I mean, we've been meeting quite a few times as well in regarding this different kind of AI, um, kind of round tables, et cetera. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, Securitas is doing some really interesting stuff as well, cool. you know, and, you know, with the, and there's so many angles there because we have the cybersecurity, AI security topic that we haven't really talked so much about. That's super good. Really yeah. good. Yeah. You know, and also the, you know, uh, what can you do? What can't you do? Exactly. We haven't touched the GDPR topic. No, no there's so many <laughs> topics. We Please skip that. But yeah. Man, thank you so much. I'm so much more excited for Swedish future than I was walking into this podcast. <laughs> and I would like to say to any CEO out there embarking on this journey to treat you to a lunch and try <laughs> to tap you for as, as much ins- insights as much as they can for an hour. Yeah. Thanks. Good closure.